That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge-watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog, because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. <laughs> BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Kanzano with the Bald Face Truth. March Madness. We're like we're like uh, ankle deep right now in March Madness. I, I want to say that we're knee deep in it. We'll be knee deep in it soon enough. Maybe Thursday or so, as the Pac-12 tournament is headed to Las Vegas, starting on Wednesday. The Oregon Ducks look a little dangerous. We'll talk about them on today's show. We'll also talk about what we can learn from the women's tournament. We'll focus a little bit on football, college football, spring football. In the Pac-12, kicking off uh, this week, Oregon State in particular. Jonathan Smith talking to reporters today. We'll deal with uh, the Ducks. We'll deal with the Beavers. We'll deal with the NFL. But I want to start today uh, by telling you a little story. I wandered over to a local high school this morning as part of a career fair, job fair. I don't know what they do. I didn't have these things when I was in high school. I don't know if you had career fairs, job fairs at your school, but a lot of the high schools have them now, and I know this because I get asked to show up and talk at these things, and I flew back in from Las Vegas yesterday. I was in Vegas over the weekend for the Women's Pac-12 tournament, headed back out later this week for the men's tournament, and uh, realized on Sunday night that I had this job fair, and I was going to be talking to high school students at uh, one of the area high schools today. And I have to be honest, like, I can talk on radio for three hours. I can uh, be in a room full of grown-ups and have no problem standing at the front of the room and addressing, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people or whoever's in the room. doesn't matter. I know my subject material cold when it comes to sports. I enjoy talking to people. I can tell stories. You hear me on this radio show telling stories all day long. But there's something about being in front of high school kids that's very different. And you know what I mean if you're a teacher? or you're somebody who ventures into a high school classroom. And I have to be honest, like I was talking to three different groups of kids this morning, and by the third group I was fine, but I have to be honest, that first group, I was a little nervous. And it surprised me that I was nervous in talking to high school kids because uh, I was a little nervous that, like, you know, were, was I going to put them to sleep? Uh, were I, uh, was, was my subject material going to be all that interesting to uh, kids who aren't diehard sports fans? Was, uh, you know, were my shoes the right shoes? Were, what, did I have wrinkles on my shirt? Because kids will judge you, especially teenage kids, like nobody else. They are judgmental creatures. And I have to be honest, I was in front of the room, and I'm talking, and I realize, like, you know, I'm talking really fast. 
You know how you do when you're nervous? You tend to speed up the pace or the cadence of what you're doing. And I noticed, you know, I got a, I had a light uh, mist of sweat forming on my forehead, my bald dome. I noticed that uh, the kids were kind of, they were still looking at me, and I thought to myself as I was talking, uh, do they know that I'm nervous? I was, I was having some mild anxiety in front of this classroom. And I eventually settled down, but it got me thinking about something, because I was talking to the kids about, um, you know, when I was in their seat all those years ago, it was a lot of years ago, I was a high school kid myself, I didn't know what I wanted to do, okay? I didn't know that I was going to have a career in sports media, that I would be a sports writer, that I would be a radio host on a sports radio station. I wasn't aware that this was going to be my path. I, I, just, I just didn't think about it. In fact, I didn't think about radio or television at all, and I ended up doing both, KGW for 10, 11 years. Uh, and uh, whenever they call my phone number, I will pick up the phone. But uh, And now uh, writing my own columns at johnconzano.com. I technically, I call it my, my seventh newspaper that I've worked at, but the other six were actual newspapers. And, and the industry, as we know, in, in media, the newspaper industry is, is uh, wilting and, and, and suffering and uh, gasping and stumbling, and we know that. And I, you know, I went off on my own. So I'm trying to explain this to kids that I had no idea that I was going to end up hosting a radio show writing sports columns. And... And uh, the kids are looking back at me, and I'm saying to them, like, you know what I've learned? And I kind of realize it as I'm standing in front of the room. I've learned that one of the best things that we can all do as people is, you know, A, pay attention when people say to you, hey, follow and try to find what you love and turn that into a job. People say that all the time. You want to love what you do. Find something that you love and turn it into a job. Now, I loved sports as a kid. And I've turned it into a job, but I never thought in those terms. And then, but there's a second part to that that nobody ever says. Also find something you're good at. So if you can find something you love, sports, and something you're good at, writing or talking, uh, it would make sense to me, like all these years later, that, you know, I was a pretty good uh, writer as a kid in English class and whatnot. I always got good grades. It came very easy to me. I was always talking when we were watching sporting events, and I was always listening to sports radio. And so it makes sense to me that I've married these things into a career, but I wish that some grown-up had told me all those years ago, hey, pay attention to what you love and also what you're good at and see if you can marry something together in that area to create a to create a path for yourself or a job or an occupation for yourself. And, and you know, that's part one of my pitch to these kids was like, hey, pay attention to that stuff. Like, you know, whatever hobby or side hustle or thing that you enjoy to do, you enjoy doing, plus the things you're good at, like what comes naturally good to you. Because you don't want to swim upstream. Like I was not a good math student. If somebody had said to me, hey, here's the answer, Kanzano. You want to be an architect who builds sports stadiums. Yeah, it's in the genre of what I love, but um, I don't understand construction management. Uh, I'm not great at math, and I would have been a terrible architect designing stadiums. Like, I, I just don't have that ability. I don't have that skill set. It's not natural to me. Um, the second thing that I talked to the kids about today was something that I think we all should be paying attention to. And, again, it's a fairly new concept that I've come to grasp, um, and it relates to something that we all learn as kids that we forget as adults. I think as kids, and I see this in my own children now, the youngest two daughters who are six and eight, I think we learn from our parents to be very fluid, to be mercurial. 
I don't know about you, but my parents didn't wake me up and hand me an itinerary for the day and say, this is what we're doing at 9.30 and 10 and 10.30 and noon today. No, I just was sort of along for the ride and had to go with the flow. And often my mom would say, hey, we're going to uh, a park and we're meeting up with her friend who happens to have a kid who was my age, six or seven or eight years old, and, hey, you're going to play with this kid. Now, what happens if I don't like this kid? What happens if I don't like the park? What happens if I don't feel like being at a park? No, you don't ask those questions when you're a kid. What you do as a kid is you go with it, right? You're mercurial. You go with the flow. You adapt. You, you, know, you meet a kid for the first time at the playground, and what happens? Fifteen minutes later, you're playing like your old buddies. Like, we forget as adults, I think, to be adaptable, to be fluid, to be mercurial. And yet, it's all around us in our adult world, in sports, what happens at halftime? Uh, everybody takes a break. We go in, you know, the teams go in, the coaches go in, and they go, okay, these are changes we're going to make literally at halftime. And in fact, a lot of those adjustments and ad adaptations are taking place series to series, play to play in some sports, at bat to at bat, where there are adjustments that are made by hitters and pitchers and D coordinators and offensive coordinators. It's right in front of us how mercurial and adaptable the world is, and yet a lot of us sit back and go, you know what, uh, I'm going to do the same thing I did yesterday. There will be no adaptation. So one of the things I shared with those kids today on career day was like, yeah, go, you know, find something you're good at. Find something you love to do. doesn't matter what it is. But it also doesn't matter what industry you go into, whether it's real estate or journalism or construction management or school teaching or whatever it is that you want to do. Let's not forget that, you know, as kids, we were very adaptable. We went with the flow. We were shapeshifters. What's that old cartoon that used to air on Saturday mornings? It was the Wonder Twins. They were superheroes at the Justice League, and they would, you know, lock wrists, and they'd say, you know, Wonder Twin powers activate, and then they would say, form of, and they'd throw out an animal, and shape of, and they'd throw out a form of water, and suddenly they were the greatest superheroes ever because they could shapeshift and adapt to whatever circumstances were in front of them. Kids can relate to that. Adults, not so much. What happens? We get rigid. What happens? Society tells us, hey, uh, you know what? Uh, you need to do what you did yesterday because nothing bad happened yesterday, so just repeat it today. Uh, also, here comes new technology. Here comes changes in your landscape. Here comes a job that used to be essential in your industry that they no longer have a need for. And I, so I think, you know, I told the kids, I said, I don't know if it's maturity that does this to us as adults. I don't know if we just grow up and we go, hey, we shouldn't be so fluid. We need to be more rigid and locked down. And, you know, we need to keep a schedule. And uh, we need to remember that, uh, you know, we can't get too far out of our lane here. Uh, I don't know if it's that, if it's a maturity thing, or if it's just culture and society kind of, kind of uh, drains us of the ability to be fluid but I was, in, uh, I was in a hotel not too long ago, and the movie Forrest Gump was on the TV. And I thought to myself, you know, we should be more, you know, Forrest Gump was childlike, right? He, was, he just kind of went and dealt with what, is, what was in front of him. Great movie. Tom Hanks, great performance. But Forrest Gump went from, you know, being in the military to playing football at Alabama to doing all these great things. He just kind of did what was in front of him, and he was very fluid, and he was very adaptable, and you know, he ends up on a shrimp boat, and uh, he kind of went where life took him. 
I think uh, we need to remember that. I'm not saying quit your job and buy a shrimp boat. I'm not saying that today. But think about what sports teaches us when it comes to adaptation. We always talk about adjustments. We talk about the quarterbacks and the players who make route adjustments, play adjustments, audibles at the line of scrimmage. We can't be afraid as adults to, to call audibles at the line of scrimmage. We can't be afraid as adults to say, hey, the uh, newspaper industry is uh, dying on the vine. You know, Maybe uh, you should launch your own project and go off on your own. Uh, it was a year ago this week that I launched johnconzano.com. And I'll be honest, there was a little trepidation. I was, you know, I was leaving the comfort and safety of the net of the newspaper world and going off to do my own thing. But I can tell you, it's been a home run. The readers have followed me. The listeners are here. And I appreciate everybody who's part of that. And I just think, you know, if, if, I, not, if I hadn't remembered, I guess, or been reminded by my wife, frankly, to uh, be adaptable, go where this industry takes you, uh, I'd probably still be writing for the paper. And, you know, I'd still be frustrated, and I'd still be looking around going, what happened to everybody? Where did everybody go? There's nobody left in the room. Um, I have a great show for you today. We're going to talk about the men's Pac-12 tournament. Oregon feels like they have a puncher's chance to win this thing in Vegas. It's really their only easy path to the NCAA tournament. They're firmly on the bubble. But I think the Ducks need to play deep in Las Vegas to get there, and they might, need, might just need to win it to, to be sure of it. And I think they're in position to be dangerous. Matt Prem, 24-7 Sports, covers the Ducks. We'll talk about their path to the title game. Beavers spring football. We'll talk about it later in the program. So much more ahead. Leave it here. you got the BFT statewide. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Stephen asked me on the commercial break, how was Vegas? We brought the six-year-old and the eight-year-old. Don't judge us. Maybe we're bad parents. He was a different kind of Vegas <laughs> with that late-week trip. Uh, it, was, it was fairly cold. The kids wanted to go to the pool, so we're out by the pool freezing as the kids are swimming around. And uh, We went to see a Cirque du Soleil show. We did a little bit of that, but it was a lot of me walking uh, by a sports book looking with uh, longing eyes at the odds on the board and saying, okay, I'll wait till next week when I'm back for the men's tournament. Matt Prem, 24-7 Sports, covers the Oregon Ducks, among other things. He's headed to Vegas, as are Dana Altman and that team. And we lost Prem there. We're going to have to get him back on. But uh, uh, he's going to be joining us here in just a second. Um, it was interesting to see Las Vegas through the eyes of a 6-year-old and an 8-year-old. There weren't a lot of other kids walking around there, but there are some casinos that do kind of kid-type things. And we took the girls to the Pac-12 Women's Basketball Tournament, which is kind of cool. Like, for everything that you look at when it comes to, like, the Pac-12 networks and how frustrated people get with the Pac-12 networks when it comes to football, you can tell it really works for women's basketball. And one of the ways you can tell it works is that Washington State a seven seed is getting the automatic berth in the, the Pac-12 women's basketball standings. They're going to get six or seven teams into the postseason. They're that good. Uh, we have Matt Prem, 24-7 Sports, on the line. Oregon Ducks uh, are the number four seed in Vegas. That means they'll get a first-round bye, which means Matt Prem's going to play some golf on Wednesday in Vegas instead of covering a basketball game. How happy are you about that? 
Oh, that was the uh, that was the the story of my internal debate uh, Saturday at, at Matinat Arena for Senior Day was looking at tea times that was available while it was halftime. <laughs> I love it. Uh, the Ducks have a chance in this thing. They're in the wrong place. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but hey, man, you're human. Uh, look, Oregon's got a puncher's chance in this thing. The teams in front of them, UCLA's got a key injury. Arizona, they, they, they've lost six games in conference play. They're beatable. USC, if they're healthy and all their pieces are out there, they're dangerous, but they're, you know, they can be beat as well. Oregon, to me, is sitting there on the outside of that group of four looking in with a lot to play for, Matt. Absolutely. I mean, they've beaten two of the three teams that you mentioned, Arizona and USC at home, and quite frankly, they really beat up on USC. Um, that was the only meeting that they had this season. Uh, Oregon hung with Arizona for a little bit down in Tucson, and then uh, Tubelas just went nuts and 40 points or whatever whatever it was. It was a lot. Uh, and that game kind of got away from Oregon. But they were always within arm's length of, of Arizona. Um, and then UCLA, they had the lead in both those games in the second half. Um, you know, this team is talented. This team is good. Uh, but we've also seen this team lay some complete duds at home, nonetheless. You know, losing by 29 at home to ASU and then going the next day or two days later beating Arizona. Uh, they lost to UC River, uh, or UC Irvine, excuse me, uh, the second game of the season. Um, Utah Valley, Mark Madsen came in and beat Oregon. Um, they lost by like 30 at Colorado, but they. They have talent. They have one of the best big men in the in, in the league, and Folly Dante, um, Kuznard, and Bartholomew have kind of rounded into form after having those injuries that kept them out of uh, action for a while. Um, Will Richardson is starting to get healthy from his injury, and you know they've got a puncher's chance. You know, I, I don't think it's it's likely that they win, but I don't think anyone would be all that shocked if. Oregon won the tournament, if you said that at the beginning of the year. And you know, that's kind of where they're at. Yeah, as the four seed, they get a bye, so they won't play until Thursday. They'll get the winner of Washington State and Cal, which means they're getting Washington State in that Thursday game. And probably, a you know, there's a chance there Washington State skates through that game. Cal's so bad, and I think Mark Fox might be coaching his last game there. So, you know, on the other side of that, that top half of the bracket, it's it's Washington against UCLA or Colorado against UCLA in the Thursday game. Yeah, UCLA, with the injury, um, you know, a little bit of shine comes off them. But yeah. outside of Dante and, and uh, it, you know, outside of Dante, as you look at Oregon's prognosis, I guess, for this tournament, give me an idea, you know, Will Richardson and Dante aside, what – who needs to step up, Matt, in your in your mind? Who needs to have a good tournament for Oregon to get to the title game? Well, I think I think Will Richardson needs to have a good game. He's you know, he's really struggled again the last, you know, couple games. Um, now to his, you know, you also have to provide the context that he's dealing with a hip injury, he's dealing with a finger injury, and he's also dealing with a wrist injury. Um and I, I saw him run at practice before the Oregon at Oregon State game two Saturdays ago. Um, it was a Thursday practice. Uh, they had to run up and down the court. And 
if you didn't know that he was hurt and if you didn't know, you know, what was going on, you would have thought he was just kind of messing around during the, 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 the run. It was that hard for him to run. Um, but he's, he's not playing well, and, he, and he's starting to get healthy. It, it, he looked better this past week than he did at Oregon State and that he did uh, at Washington and Washington State. He needs to play better, though. He needs to be – he led the team in scoring for a large chunk of this, game, of this season. He's a guy that continually, you know, competed for 20 points a game and, you know, hovered right around 14 for most of the season. Um, he needs to get going. He needs to be a, you know, he needs to hit some threes. He needs to be a, a force that, you know, will suck the defense out away from Dante. But besides those two – you know, Bartholomew has really got going shooting the three. Uh, he had 17 points uh, a couple weeks ago in a game at Washington State, 7 of 10 off the bench from the field. Uh, he really got it going against Stanford with a couple – I think he made three straight threes that he shot in that game. Um, he, he seems to be kind of a microwave for Oregon off the bench. And then, it, you know, beyond that, I, I kind of think it's Cole Ware. Dan Alden spoke about that Saturday after the, the win at Stanford. That he said, if, if Fabio Dante wasn't playing so good, Kalel Ware would have played more than the nine minutes that he played in that game. Ware had a, had a sequence in the first half where he got a really impressive uh, drop step layup, uh, and then the very next possession hit a three pointer. He contested a shot in between and grabbed a rebound on defense. There, he was active. Altman really praised him, and this is a guy that's got first-round NBA potential, but he is so inconsistent, and you can't count on him game in, game out. But if they can get him to, to play like he did against Stanford for three days in a row, he could be a huge wild card because there really isn't anyone in the conference that has a big man besides Arizona that can really do what he does with how tall he is, what he can shoot threes, he can block a ton of shots. I mean, that kid does not know how good he could be if, if he could just put together consistent, hard effort for a full game. Yeah, I think when I think about this season and this team, I want to go back to last year, Matt. You were there. I was there. That last news conference that ended sort of Oregon's Pac-12 tournament, Dana Altman shows up. He seemed, I don't want to say he was relieved, but, I got the impression that he didn't have a lot of fun last season. Is he having more fun this year as you see him? Um, I think it's a different level of frustration because he saw the potential of this team before the injuries kind of decimated the year. Um, they've never really been able to get into a groove because at the beginning of the year, Rigsby and Kuznard – both went down with, with lower body injuries. Uh, I think both of them were, were knees. And then shortly into the season, uh, Bartholomew went down with an ankle injury. Biddle went down with an ankle injury. Uh, Dante missed a game because of a concussion. And Dana talked about it uh, after the game at, Stanford, uh, at home against Stanford on Saturday that in basketball, lower body injuries is like the kiss of death. Because if you have a hand injury, you maybe can't dribble or you can't shoot the basketball, but you can still keep your conditioning. You can still run. You can still do some form of lifting 
But when it's a when it's a lower body injury, you can't do any of that on top of really shooting or anything else too. And it really knocks you out for however long you are you know you're out, and it takes a long time to get back. And so I think this season, there's 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 fun here, there's frustration, but it's a different kind of frustration because it feels like a season that was robbed. You know, maybe this team healthy and and they don't they don't live up to expectations regardless. I don't know, but knowing and seeing how this team has played in spurts, beating Arizona, beating USC almost knocking off Michigan State with, like, six scholarship guys. They beat Villanova with six scholarship guys. They contested with Houston for 30 minutes. Houston's one of the best teams in the country with only, like, nine nine total players. I think seven or eight of those guys were scholarship guys. You know, seeing what they've been able to do at in, in short spurts, you, you just it's hard to wonder what if. And so I think that's maybe where his frustration comes from. But he – he made it very clear, uh, I think it was after the Cal game, that he's like, look, I'm trying to change in, in today's day and age of college basketball. You either get fired, you retire, or you, you change. And I'm trying to change. And I, I thought that was a really interesting comment because there's a lot of people out here that are wondering, oh, maybe Dan is you know, going to hang it up because he's so frustrated with, with how the last two seasons have gone. And when he made that comment and when he made – the comment earlier in the year when they lost to Utah Valley right before Christmas break, and he's like, I can't even look at my grandkids on Christmas Day and that cheer the mood up after that loss. Like, he still has that fire. And I, I, I think knowing the recruiting class he's got coming in, uh, you know, he's still going to be at Oregon for a while. Yeah, somebody asked me that. John Wilner asked me that, uh, Bay Area News Group. He says, if you, do you have any indication that Dana would hang it up? And I don't see that, and I especially don't see that with the class he has coming in. Can we skip forward for a second here, Matt? Like, tell yeah. me about this class. Jackson Shellstad, obviously the West Lynn kid, four-star player. Uh, who else is in this class to be excited about that's coming in next year? Yeah, it, it, it's very close to being three five-stars, all high school players in one recruiting class. Uh, Kwame Evans is the highest-rated player. He's like a six-foot-nine kind of power forward, small forward guy. Um, I, I would maybe compare him to a, a much more athletic Paul White, guy that can play inside and out for Oregon. You know, Paul White was really big for the Ducks on that Sweet 16 run. Uh, Kwame is a way better player, but that's the type of player you're going to get from him. Um, and then there's Mookie Cook. Former Oregon kid, he he started his career at Jefferson for two years and then went down to a an academy in Arizona. Um, he's another five-star player, and the best way to describe him is he's never really elite at one area on on the floor, but he's really good at everything. Um, I, I think he's going to be a really good three and D wing type guy. He can guard point guards to, to guarding power forwards, really. Um, and then there's Shellstead. You know, he's it, it, it's unfair, but it's also very easy to make the comparison. He's Peyton Pritchard 2.0, same high school, same you know caliber of uh, of a recruit. Um, both guys were four star players. Both guys were top 100 players. Actually, him and Will Richardson are very similar in terms of their overall ranking. Both top 50 guys. Shellstead's ranked just a little higher, and it, it's going to be interesting because. We don't know what Dante is doing, if he's going to use the free COVID year. Same thing with Quincy Guerrier. Same thing with Rivaldo Soares. Um, 
Jermaine Cousinard did not walk on senior day. He hinted. I asked him, well, you know, ahead of senior day, like, what what does senior day look like for you? How is that emotion going to be like for you? Because it could be senior day. You also could walk and, and come back. And he said that he's not really interested in, in walking, and his, his plan is right now that he wants to come back, but he's going to check his options. And he didn't walk um, on, on Saturday. And I, I, I would think that's a good indication of where his head's at. And so you, if you can get Dante back and Quincy back and Soares back, you know, I, I, I think Dante's probably gone. Um, he's having a career year, one of the best big men in college basketball. Um, he's probably gone. But if you can get the other three guys to come back, along with Kuznard, along with this freshman class, you've got a bunch of upperclassmen and you've got three really talented freshmen that are all basically five stars are almost there to kind of fill in the gaps that, that, that are going to be there. And then we'll see what they do in, in the spring. Bronny James is still out there. Um, you know, he's a dynamic guard, can, can play on or off the ball, really good shooter, really good defender. Uh, and, and then, you know, the portal. Dan Altman's always been a master at finding portal guys, and we're going to start seeing the portal flood in with players as, as seasons end this week and into next. Yeah, that's another reason why I think their performance in this tournament becomes important, not just to get them to the NCAA tournament, but to put them in position for some players who go, hey, maybe they're a player or two away from being a, a team that could play deep in the tournament again. Matt, I will see you in Vegas. I appreciate your time. Have a good round of golf on Wednesday. I'll be in the arena and see you on Thursday. Uh, I'll be in the arena. i got to get my free dinner. Uh, i got to get my free dinner. So. <laughs> I love it. All right, I'll catch you there. Sounds good. Matt Prame, 24-7 Sports. Ducks play on Thursday. It'll be their first game. The tournament starts Wednesday, and Oregon will get the winner of number 5 seed Washington State and number 12 Cal. Cal doesn't have a lot of uh, gas in the tank. Uh, I believe it will be Washington State on Thursday, 2.30 on the Pac-12 Network's and uh, on the other side of their arm of the bracket, UCLA will be playing the winner of Washington and Colorado on Thursday. Look for a big Friday night showdown between Oregon and UCLA. That's my prediction. I want you to leave it here. we got more, much more ahead. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Spring football officially starting tomorrow for Oregon State. Jonathan Smith, we had him on the show last week, talked uh, for a bit about his quarterbacks. He's got a uh, stable of quarterbacks, including uh, transfer DJ Uingalele, uh, that I'm very interested to see. Like, Look, I think it's fair to say that Ben Goldbrinson, uh, you can call him the starter for now at Oregon State. And I think Oregon State might go to great lengths to to project uh, Ben Goldbrinson as, uh, you know, the starter in that quarterback room. But we all know it's going to be a competition, and we know that we, we sort of expect that DJ will emerge as the QB. Jonathan Smith talking about that quarterback room. He's taking every opportunity these first couple months to learn, um, uh, getting with our coaches and learning the, the installs and the offense. Terminology is different, and so – uh, he'll, he's primed and ready to do that uh, starting tomorrow. I do think he's had some benefit of the other quarterbacks in the room. Aiden Childs in the same boat, got here in January, 
and you know Ben and Travis, I think, have been very accepting and diving in and meeting and throwing and uh, getting those guys up to speed as much as possible. So uh, definitely looking forward, DJ, but really that quarterback room in general, all those guys to take a step in their game. First experience for Aiden and DJ, but even Ben to build off of what he did last year. And, and obviously Travis has been around here now almost a year and has some comfort with the with offense, getting an opportunity to show it. Now, look, uh, in Jonathan Smith's tenure, it's been the great mystery. You know, his inability to recruit a difference-making quarterback has been puzzling. I would have thought after leaving Washington that quarterbacks would have been lined up to come to Oregon State and play for Jonathan Smith. But as we have learned in today's world, it is very much what have you done for me lately. And I think quarterbacks, high school quarterbacks, were waiting to see what Oregon State would be before joining the party. And Oregon State, and I wrote it last year, I said it last year, I thought they were really good at 21 positions at times and not very good at the quarterback position. But that was mainly with Chance Nolan at quarterback. Uh, ben Goldbrinson came in. He was, he was steady for Oregon State. He did a nice job engineering the offense, leading the offense, um, you know, managing games. I don't mean that as a disrespect to Ben Goldbrinson. I think he needs some more time, and I don't think ideally he would have been thrown into the situation he was thrown into after Chance Nolan went down with that terrible injury against Utah. So Goldbrinson, I thought, did a really nice job in the last six or seven games of the season sort of writing it out. But the fact of the matter is Oregon State, Ended up a 10-win team. And DJ Uyengalele is at Clemson, and he's going, where can I go where I can step in and essentially do what Tom Brady did in leaving New England to go to Tampa? And Oregon State was at the front of the line there because Oregon State can run the football. Oregon State's got an offensive line. Oregon State has a very offensive-minded coaching staff with Jonathan Smith and Brian Lindgren as the head coach and the coordinator. You basically have two offensive coordinators, two quarterback coaches. It's a dream scenario for a good quarterback. But look out. Look out behind DJ because beyond DJ is Aiden Childs. And Aiden Childs is 6'4". He's a dual-threat kid. He is a four-star quarterback. And I'm kind of thinking and feeling like, you know, Jonathan Smith came on the show last week. i got to be honest with you. I, I – noticed in his interview that he was a little reluctant to go all in praising DJ as this is our guy, we're, this is the face of the franchise, this is the quarterback of our immediate future. He said none of that. And in fact, later when I reached out to Oregon State to try to get DJ on the show, um, I figured out pretty quickly that what Oregon State wants to do here in the spring is they want to start spring football. They want to let the quarterbacks play a little bit before they do a bunch of media interviews. I think you're going to start to see interviews with DJ in about a week, but I think they're going to let the QB room for this first week of spring ball that is beginning tomorrow. I think they're going to let it marinate a little bit. I think they're going to let those guys play, maybe even make Goldbrinson, like let him take all the reps with the number ones to start and then work some other guys in. Because I think the ultimate motivation here if Jonathan Smith is playing chess and not checkers with his quarterbacks, and I do think he's playing chess, I think he's going to ideally want to see DJ as his starter come football season. I think you want Ben Goldbrinson in that room because he gives you a backup that's got some experience, who knows the offense, 
and I think you want Aiden Childs as the future of the franchise very much engaged, very much seeing where he fits in the picture, very much excited about being the guy a year from now and two years from now and possibly three years from now as I think Jonathan Smith's got a quarterback room that he could really build on. Our big splash is coming up. The one thing you need to know. What is it? Stick around and find out. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Oregon will start its spring football uh, first practice March 16th. Then they will practice again on March 18th, and then they will uh, they will uh, take spring break, and then they will start back up on April 4th. And the spring football game for Dan Lanning will take place uh, April 29th at uh, Autzen Stadium, a week after Oregon State's spring game. My uh, expectations for Oregon are a lot different than Oregon State. I know who the QB is at Oregon. It's Bo Nix. He's returning. Uh, he uh, signed on for another year, so to speak. Uh, I know that uh, Oregon will wear a bunch of different uniforms. I know that they will have highly recruited players. The question I have in the spring for Oregon is is different than Oregon State. It is uh, it relates to the defensive identity at or at Oregon. Uh, Dan Lanning is a defensive-minded coach. I need to see identity on that defense. Did not have it last year. Uh, didn't show it. Was absent. Uh, I thought they had a really nice season. Of course, they win 10 games and everybody's disappointed. Oregon State wins 10 games and people are throwing a parade. It's a different of expectations. But for me at Oregon, I just kind of want to see that the defense has got fangs and the defense is active and it's flying around. And I think it's going to be hard in the spring because I think the offense with Bo Nix is, it, you know, it's not going to get pushed around. It'll move the ball. But I want to see some identity from a defense that has a head coach that came from Georgia to Oregon. I don't need the Georgia players, or maybe I do, but I need the I need the mentality uh, that the defense did not have a year ago. Uh, again, Oregon's spring game, April 29th. Oregon State's April 22nd. Both programs will be interrupted by spring break. Uh, Judah Newby, Stephen, what are you looking for from the Ducks and the Beavers in the spring? I agree with you about defensing some fangs, but I just laughed audibly here in the studios, and maybe I do need those Georgia players. Uh, that's a really good point. <laughs> but even with the guys that they had, John, I mean, guess who's gone? Christian Gonzalez. Like, yeah. he's going to the NFL. He's going to be a top draft pick. You don't just replace that, you know, A for B. I am interested in that defense, for sure. I do think the offense, by and large, will take care of itself, although I am looking at the offensive line as well. They're going to have to replace some bodies up there, and uh, interested to see how that looks. But you know how it is with spring ball. Hope, hope springs eternal uh, for a lot of these teams, and you can only take away so much out of the gate. Yeah, with the with the Ducks, it's it's all about the defense. Like You guys are touching on it, and the, there was always the questions of Dane Laney didn't call the plays in Georgia on the defensive side, but he was a part of that Georgia defense, right? He, he was he was the coaching staff. Um, so what does he actually bring to Oregon? Then in year one at Oregon, that defense was not very good. I mean, it just really wasn't. Now, you know, coming into this next season, they got Texas Tech Week 2, who is an average offense. Like They're not a great offense, but we'll see how good that defense has improved 
you know, with Christian Gonzalez leaving and uh, DJ Johnson gone, like they got some guys that are missing. They got to fill them in. Uh, and for Oregon to take that next step, it's going to be on the defensive side. I think offensively, they're going to be fine. Bo Nix is going to be a good leader on that side. They got the running backs. They got the receivers. But defensively, can they take that next step? And if they can, they're real contenders in the Pac-12. But I need to see it first. I need to see it out of Dan Lanning. Uh, can they actually get that defense going this year? Yeah, and I think that was the surprise to me last year in kind of watching them. They 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 had a real identity on offense. I think you could see what Kenny Dillingham, the the, the offensive coordinator, was trying to do with Bo Nix and some of the weapons that he had. But on defense, they kind of just were there. And they had good efforts. They had good games. But I didn't see, like, you know, I don't know at the end of the year, by the time they're playing Oregon State, kind of what they are on defense. I don't, I don't really know what they are. They're just kind of there. And maybe that happens sometimes when you have teams that are, you know, the identity of the team becomes offensive-minded because the best player is your quarterback. But I can even think back to some Chip Kelly coach teams that had Nick Aliotti as the D coordinator. They were flying around on defense. They they had an identity. They had playmakers. They they you know they were active. They were attacking. And I saw a lot of sitting back from Oregon this last season. I don't want to see that in year two at Dan Lanning. I want to see, I want to see you know March 16th, March 18th, those first two spring practices. Maybe not there, but by the time they play their spring game on April 29th, I would like to see that the defense is starting to shape some kind of identity that we can expect to see in the fall. Do you, uh, uh, yeah. quick question for it. Do you think we're also taking the offense too much for granted with the uh, OC change? Yeah, could be. Will Stein's coming in. I've asked for him on the show. We'd like to get him in the next couple weeks because I want to see what he's about. But I guess the prevailing thought at Oregon is that they're going to they're gonna you know hire recruiters and then they're going to hire a coordinator like Stein who has – you know, a lot of creativity in the passing attack. I, I, the only thing I know about Will Stein is I watched, I watched some film of him talking about offensive philosophy, and I feel like they hired Kenny Dillingham 2.0. Like they kind of just went after a guy that they think will call games similar to Dillingham. So you're right in that, you know, here comes Bo Nix, and, and luckily Stein's got Bo Nix back. I'd be more worried if Nix wasn't there. But – you know, Kenny Dillingham told me last season that Bo Nix had the ability to change plays at the line of scrimmage. Then he was calling a lot of uh, the audibles, and he was calling some of the game situations. And in the bowl game against North Carolina, it was Bo Nix on the final drive of that game that was calling the plays. And Dan Lanning talked about that. Bo Nix made that call in the game-winning, you know, pass. So I'm less worried about it because Bo Nix is there maybe, and maybe I'm being naive. Well, and I think that's the reason why I'm not worried about it is if Bo Nix really was worried about the offensive coordinator change, he would have gone to the NFL. Like, his stock was never higher, but he said, I'm going to come back because I feel comfortable uh, with with Stein as the offensive coordinator. I don't think it's going to be much of a difference. So I think it's that, that, to me, makes it seem like he has a lot of confidence in the offensive coordinator and just leads me to believe that the Ducks should be fine offensively. So I really just don't have any questions on that side. Just hit with the comfort that he has. Yeah, and look, I just I have a lot of faith in the fact that I know Oregon can recruit. So I know they're going to have, you know, I love the depth that they've got at running back and receiver. The offensive line, they will reload there. Bo Nix, if he's healthy, knocking on wood, like to see him. Still don't know what the injury was. Was it a foot? Was it an ankle? Was it uh, a metatarsal thing? I don't know. Did he have a bunion? Nobody will tell us. 
I, I think uh, you know. I'm looking. I'm looking at Bo Nix going. Bo the Bunyan Nix. <laughs> I'm looking. There might be an endorsement deal in there. Uh, Doctor Scholes, Shoemill, somebody, get on that. Um, but I, I just, I'm less worried about it because Bo's there, and I, it's the defense. It really disappointed me last year. Like well, you, you know, you guys don't look no further than the Civil War. I mean, they ripped. They had their hearts ripped out by their in-state rival. With a 31-10 lead. I mean, look no further. With no passes. With no passes. I mean, that is cutting your knees off and making you beg for mercy. I mean, if that's still not palpable on the front of every Duck fan's mind and every player inside that weight room and everything throughout this entire offseason, I do not know what will get to that unit. Yeah, you talked about not having identity, John, on the defensive side. The identity was you could push this team around. Defensively, and Oregon State yeah. did that that final game, and it's I think not that, acceptable. And that's the one thing Lane has got to get him going. He's got to be physical on that side of the football. Yeah, and I think it starts right up front. Uh, brings us to our big splash. It's the one thing that you need to know. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where down there? The big splash. Well, the Seahawks have their quarterback for now. Geno Smith and the Seahawks have agreed to a three-year, $105 million deal. The comeback player of the year is coming back. Seahawks and Geno Smith uh, came to an agreement today. Includes $52 million guaranteed in the first year. Uh, Both sides wanted to get the deal done, and by reaching an agreement today, they beat tomorrow's deadline for teams to apply the franchise tag which would have carried a $32.4 million price tag for quarterbacks. So uh, Smith, who's 32 years old, gets to stay with the Seahawks. The Seahawks get to keep Smith for now. The big question will be, what do the Seahawks do in the draft? Do they draft a quarterback? Do they trade back? Do they pick a quarterback later in the first round or the second round? Judah Newby, you're a Seahawks fan. Geno Smith, the quarterback for now, do they do they add a QB to that room? Can't rule it out. Can't rule it out. I, I think if they do get a QB there, it's probably Levis. The way Stroud performed at the Combine, I don't know if I love that or not, but you, you can't rule them out taking a QB. You only pick the top five so often. There it is. That's the one thing you need to know. Keep an eye on the Seahawks. Uh, they appear to be loading up the quarterback room. But keep in mind, this is a franchise coached by a defensive-minded coach. Defense is... Uh, had an identity when the Seahawks are good. I I have to think Pete Carroll is pretty excited about some of the defensive players he sees at the top of that draft, too. So I wouldn't be surprised by anything when it comes to the draft and the Seahawks. We'll talk more about it, plus punch it audio. We have great sound. It's all next right here. Leave it here. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Later in the program, we'll check in with Oregon State, see how they're doing as uh, the Beavers are preparing for their opening round game of the Pac-12 tournament in men's basketball. Also preparing for spring football. Probably more anticipation surrounding the spring football equation at Oregon State. But for those who follow Oregon State basketball, they're the 11 seed. On the bright side, they got they drew number six Arizona State in the opening round on Wednesday night at 8.30 on the Pac-12 Networks. 
Uh, so on the bright side, you know, that's not like it's an impossible win for Oregon State. But Arizona State and Bobby Hurley, they play with a lot of passion. They have a lot of alacrity, so to speak, in their game. Uh, by the way, Bill Walton will be on the broadcast for that game on the Pac-12 Networks. Are we good with Bill Walton? Does everybody, like, let's be honest. He's not listening right now, Stephen and Judah. How do you guys feel about Bill Walton on a broadcast? Are you totally on board with Bill Walton? Or he seems to polarize the, the room when we bring him up. Some people love him. Some people hate him. I absolutely love him. Um, I think he does provide an okay analysis of the game. Like, I don't, I would never say he's the best analyst because if you really want the basketball junkie stuff, like, he's not going to do that. But as a guy who usually isn't, like, rooting for a team or a fan of the team, I think he's very entertaining, and I'd love to hear his stories. Like, I think he's very funny and engaging and, most of all, just entertaining. Like, it is entertainment to me. So, for me, I love when Bill Walton's on the broadcast, especially if it's a team, you know, like Oregon State who's having a struggle of a season. Like, he can provide some laughs and chuckles for me uh, so I don't get too involved in the game. So, I, I love him. I, I like I like him too. Like he's in his own category for me. So if you you sit back and you're watching a game with Bill Walton, then as a viewer, you've got to you know know what you're getting into here. And maybe you watch the game on mute, or uh, you have a couple of cold ones. I like Bill Walton because I know when I turn a game on, I'm not. I can see the action on the court right when I'm watching a game on television. I don't need an analyst and a play-by-play person necessarily to tell me what's going on. I trust my eyes. Uh, and I feel like Bill Walton and I are watching the game together. And Dave Pash and I are sharing the frustration of not being able to get a word in. <laughs> and so I think there's a little bit of that going on. Now, it'll be Ted Robinson, not Pash, on the call as Walton's sidekick. Uh, Walton will have both the Oregon State-Arizona State game at 8.30. It's a late game on Wednesday. And you'll have the Utah-Stanford game at 6 o'clock. So they're calling two games each. Um, and then Walton will unfortunately not be on the Oregon game on Thursday. It'll be uh, Don McLean and Roxy Bernstein. And uh, it'll be Walton on the late games featuring Arizona and USC. So uh, I just feel like he's alongside me. And, you know, we're, we're having a chat while we're watching the game. And, you know, he's talking about going to the hot springs and taking a dip and you know, riding his bicycle, and I'm okay with that. Do you think he helps the perception of the Pac-12? Uh, I think it fits the brand. The is perception that, is the, that good? Yeah, <laughs> I, I do think it's. I think it is good because, look, the, you know, it used to be when you traveled around. I noticed this too because you know I've obviously for this job I've traveled quite a bit, and the you know the very first year that I was uh, you know moved to the state of Oregon and writing columns, I looked at my account. Uh, you know, because I had like membership in the Marriott Rewards account, you know, like I would always stay at a Marriott hotel back in the day. And I had 250 nights that I was in hotel rooms. And you travel around the country uh, and you get a flavor for different places. Like, you you know, you get a flavor. There's a flavor to Memphis. There's a flavor to New Orleans. There's a there's a flavor to Dallas. There's a flavor to New York, Boston, Chicago. Like there's differences in those cities. Now, it has become over time that when you go into airports, you don't know where you are because all airports are the same and they sell you the same crap in their stores. And, you know, it's, it's all the same trinkets and the crap. Like they've all become 
sort of uh, you know homogenized, and and so I look at you know differences in cities, and I think you got to get out and you got to see some restaurants and you got to meet some people to understand differences in cities. But to understand the Pac-12 footprint, you just need the guy in the tie-dye T-shirt with the red hair and you know the big nose and the big ears and you know Bill Walton doing his thing. Like he kind of just fits the brand of the conference. I think the the deterioration of the brand has more to do with the Larry Scott leadership for a decade. And I, and I think people always looked at Bill Walton like sideshow Bill. And, hey, this is a safe place to kind of let your guard down and watch a basketball game. I guess that does make sense. I, I just – I do wonder. And it's men's basketball only, obviously. But uh, I do wonder if, you know, people take him seriously when he's pontificating yeah. about – the Pac-12 should have X amount of teams in the at-large no. conversation, you know, whatever. It's like, well, we kind of know his brand, and we kind of take it as a joke. So is that yeah. good or bad? I don't know. Yeah, but I think, look, um, I don't think I see any broadcaster on television that I totally take seriously. Skip Bayless, Shannon Sharp, Stephen A. Smith, you know, even the guys on the college football playoff selection committee who took shots at the Pac-12 – I kind of look at him and I go, you know, yeah, great. You know, you your opinion is as valid as anybody else's opinion on TV. And, you know, I think it's it's interesting. But when Bill Walton says he – I think he said last week there should be seven teams, or he said it over the weekend, mm-hmm. the Pac-12 should have seven teams in the tournament. That's ridiculous. There's like UCLA, Arizona, USC have earned their way in. They probably are all in. The best that the Pac-12 can hope for – is that USC, you know, beats uh, Arizona State or Oregon State, whoever comes out of the first round, and advances to the to the uh, quarterfinals, and that Oregon wins the whole thing, and Oregon is the fourth team in, and I think the Pac-12 would, you know, obviously, I think it's really interesting too that Oregon has lost so many games to injury this year, but nobody nationally is talking about that. They're talking about the injury to Jalen Clark at U- UCLA which they should be. It's a big injury, and it affects a potential one seed. But Oregon's had a pile of injuries, and if Oregon gets to – I don't even think Oregon needs to win the tournament to, to make the NCAA tournament field. I think Oregon just needs to beat UCLA, get that quality win, and get to the championship game against Arizona or USC. And I think that might be enough to get off the bubble and into the, into the bracket. But I, I always look at Walton and I go – He's a quintessential Pac-12 fan. Of course he thinks seven teams should get in, just like your grandpa thinks seven teams should get in. Let's play some Punch It Audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's start with uh, the NFL. Anthony Richardson at the NFL Combine. Dan Orlovsky on the Dan Patrick Show talking about the Florida quarterback, Anthony Richardson. Punch it. And I just think of taking a quarterback in the draft we know is, you know, good luck. Roll the dice type of thing. If you're rolling the dice, if you're taking your chance, you're big, you're fast, you're strong, you're powerful, you're a natural thrower, you have great intelligence, you work really hard, you've got good leadership skills and good character. Where, Where is the glaring, oh my gosh, he might fail? 
Yeah, look, I, I get it. There, there's an oh my gosh, he might fail attached to every draft pick. But I understand why teams are interested in Anthony Richardson, and I understand why a general manager might pick him high in the first round. He's got the tools. He's got the talent. Will he develop? I don't know. That's why it's all speculative. That's why it's a draft. And that's why if you redrafted the NFL draft from three or four years ago, it wouldn't go the same way. Like, all the GMs would go, oh, never mind. Let me take that guy that, you know, in the second round that made a Pro Bowl. Doesn't that um, seem like to you, John? Oh, sorry about this. Uh, yeah. That jo- because of Josh Allen and his low completion percentage at Wyoming and his athletic skills, how he's been so good in the NFL, now every team is kind of looking for that guy that is just a really good athlete, even if they don't put up good college numbers. You know, Judah talked about Will Levis, Anthony Richardson. I feel like these teams are buying more in just athleticism rather than what they see on the actual tape because of what Josh Allen has done in the NFL. Yeah, and look, there's other examples of misses, though. And I think it goes, yeah, I think that's one way to look at it. But I also think, like, you look at a Jamarcus Russell that the Raiders took number one overall in 2007. You know, he looked like he had athleticism. He had the arm. He went 7-18 and in just 25 starts, and that was that. Done with him. And... So I think what what teams are doing, especially the teams that are picking high, is they're going, you know, we need we know it's a quarterback centric league. We know that dual threat quarterbacks are the way to go. And so we're gonna try to pick the best one on the board. Now Josh Allen's out there as an example, but so is Patrick Mahomes with the Chiefs, and so are some other guys. But yeah, I mean for every success there's three or four failures. Is Anthony Richardson uh, boom or bust uh, right now I I think he's pretty raw and I think it would be really difficult to see a bad team building around a guy that maybe needs to sit and wait for a while I think the biggest enemy that Anthony Richardson has right now is his talent it's gonna make him a high pick in this draft and presumably he'll go to a team that puts him in there and says go help us win right now I don't know if he's ready Rich Eisen says that the craziest rumor at the NFL Combine doesn't involve a draftable player. It involves Tom Brady. Here's Eisen. Punch it. Number one rumor I heard at the Combine, not in terms of a lot of yat chatter, but this this one just blew my mind. Tom Brady may not be done after all. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's a couple people are like, just you, just hang on, just you wait. Wait for and I'm what? Like, what I'm, are you I'm, for? And I'm like, he's Instagramming out videos of his cat. You know, trips. yeah, he was at UFC he, over the weekend. I know, but it doesn't look like he's getting uh, big, big and fat, does it? And and that he just let, like let it play out. Let's see who wants what. And and the one place that folks are saying keep an eye out for is Miami. Keep an eye. I love that Rich Eisen's like he hasn't gotten big and fat. How many weeks has it been? Like you know, it. Let's let it play out, Rich Eisen. If Brady's going to get big and fat, let's give it a couple years before that before that happens. But look, if Brady unretires or doesn't stay retired, let's just say that, I think there's an exhaustion or a fatigue already with Brady. And the fact that, uh, you know, we're talking now about Tom Brady, he said for good, and I want to believe him, and if he comes back, I'm going to hate him for it because I can't go through all of this again. And nor can a lot of fans in the NFL. I think they'll be done with it. Jonathan Smith uh, said that, uh, you know, the end of the season momentum was nice. But how do you channel that into spring football? Spring football begins for Oregon State tomorrow. 
Here's the Beavers coach, punch it. I think in ways, yeah, it, it impacts uh, just a little bit of confidence, understanding that we can accomplish some things. I think on the flip side of it, though, and this team knows it, I mean, each year is new. This roster is new. There's new players here, and, and what took place last year, yeah, we want to learn from, gain confidence from, but we know we, it doesn't help us at all, starting with our first first home game, or first game in September. So, yeah, a lot of guys returning on this roster know what it looks like to be able to compete at a really high level, and what it looks like is putting some real work in and well, the stage we're at right now is spring ball. It started with the weight room January and February, and now the stage we're in spring ball. we got to take another step and going back to the, the main goal of spring is everyone improving. We did that last year in spring ball. Got to do it again. A year ago, Jonathan Smith was coming off a 7-6 and six season. He went into spring practice with odds makers in Las Vegas saying that the win total for Oregon State in 2022 was set at 5 and a half guys it was set at five and a half wins they got to nine in the regular season 10 with the bowl game that was an easy uh hey they're going to be bowl eligible again you know pick the over it's not going to be as easy this season there'll be expectations they'll walk into stadiums with teams going hey this team's really good it's respected but they're going to walk in with a stable of quarterbacks and some proof of performance with them. I'm really excited to see what Oregon State does at the quarterback position because I think it, you know, again, it's a quarterback-centric game. If they can make an improvement there, look out because the ceiling then goes from, hey, can they win the Civil War, can they win 9 or 10, to can they get to Vegas for the conference championship game. Yeah, isn't that the biggest thing is the expectations because last year, you know, they flew under the radar a little bit. Now they went out, they get DJ Uyunglele, who everybody's heard of, right? Like he was the number one guy coming out of high school. Everyone knows this guy. And he goes to Corvallis. He goes to Oregon State. So like they have a name, they have a brand now. They're not going to be sneaking up on anybody. It's going to be a really fun year for Oregon State. I think they're very talented and this might be Jonathan Smith's most talented team, but the, you know, the, the, the hiddenness of this team, how good it is. Everyone knows what it is now. There's going to be no surprises. So it's going to be really interesting this season. Yeah, they're not sneaking up on anybody this season. Anna's going to be sneaking into the studio next. We'll talk about John Morant and more. Leave it here. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anna's popped into the studio. Uh, we're going to talk about John Morant in this segment. We'll take some phone calls uh, on the subject as well. Uh, there are some uh, more gun-related accusations uh, surrounding uh, John Morant, and let's review. Uh, let's review uh, sort of what has happened, what's been alleged to this point. But um, you've got a July 26th incident at uh, Jaws' home in Memphis, where uh, a 17-year-old is. Uh, alleging that he was beat up after an argument erupted in their pickup basketball game. There are some accusations relating to a gun there that have yet to be proven true. Uh, Washington Post reporting an incident that took place at the Memphis Mall four days after that, in which a security guard said that John Morant threatened him during an altercation in the parking lot. Per the report, the incident began when uh, John Morant's mother got into a dispute with an employee at a shoe store, then called John for assistance he arrived thereafter with as many as nine other people. Uh, there's a video uh, that uh, prompted a swift response from the Grizzlies and and uh, uh, also, uh, 
you have him uh, you have a deleted tweet from May in which uh, Durant told a fan during a spat that uh, he basically said uh, he basically threatened a fan indirectly in, uh, on social media and uh, you now have Jaw taking a break from his team and you have Ramona Shelburne of ESPN saying that uh, police are now investigating the Instagram Live video of John Morant. Let me play that clip. Here's Ramona Shelburne reporting. The Glendale Police Department in Colorado is, has confirmed that the incident took place in Colorado at a, at a bar um, in Colorado. And that's important, Malika, because they are a, uh, because Colorado has different gun laws than, let's say, Los Angeles. The Grizzlies flew from from Denver to Los Angeles on Saturday, and here's the statement from the Glendale Police Department. Um, Colorado is an open carry state, so the gun laws there are different. However, the, the, it is illegal to possess a firearm in Colorado if you're under the influence of alcohol. Now, you can, it's hard to determine whether Miranda's under the influence of alcohol here, but this is what the police department is investigating now. And this is a legal situation now as it moves forward, not just at the NBA level, but in the state of Colorado. Now, the NBA typically does not announce when it's conducting an investigation. And so on Saturday morning, when the NBA announced that it was investigating John Moran of the Memphis Grizzlies for a second time in less than two months, it caught my eye and it caught the eye of other people who are following John Morant's career path. Uh, we've seen a number of sports television analysts, hosts, former athletes weighing in on the subject. Here's Shannon Sharp uh, last month, very disappointed with John. I wish John would realize that he's not a thug. John is a really, John is a really good basketball player. John did everything he could to lift himself and his family out of this type of environment and to get away from this. And for some reason, he wants to surround himself with these type of people. Why? Bro, you not hard. That's not your life. People that in that life would give anything to be in your life. Great point. For some reason, you're worth 30, you're worth, all, you got a $200 million contract and you want people in the NBA to think you hood. To think you gangster because you roll with these type of people, bro. You putting yourself in harm's way when you don't have to. Nobody looks at you, John. Think, man, that's a thug. He hood. <laughs> he down. He bought that. You not. Stop pretending. Shannon Sharp fired up about it. Uh, the NBA builds its image on its star players. I want to kick this around, Stephen, Judah, Anna. The NBA is invested in this. It always has. It from Magic Johnson to Larry Bird to Michael Jordan to Kobe to Shaq, to, you know, Charles Barkley. This is a league that builds its brand on star players, and John Morant was trending in that direction as a star player. I think the NBA is making a business decision here, going, hey, we need to pump the brakes. There may be some criminal activity, but I actually think they're trying to talk some sense into him. I think it's interesting that they've made this investigation public as he steps away. What do you guys make of it? Anna, what do you make of the whole thing? Uh, I mean, I think they're definitely trying to send a message that basically, you know, what is the NBA? What is the NBA? It's an entertainment entity, right? And so they need their stars to fall in line and not affect the brand. So they are effectively saying, hey, you know, like optimistically, I want to say that they have John Morant's best interests at heart. Sure. You know, like as an entity, they're saying, hey, we've got somebody whose behavior off the court is uh, troubling, to say the least, criminally, potentially, based on what was actually happening in the nightclub prior to the handgun being brandished. 
Um, but ultimately, the NBA cares about um, how it's being perceived by the public. And so I think that really what it cares right now about is that, you know, we're talking about these things that have nothing to do with basketball. And obviously, those of us who grew up around here and are familiar with the Jailblazers era, this is all just a little bit too familiar to yeah. us, right? So we know that these are the kinds of things that you don't want star players to be, um, you know, mixed in the conversation with. And he's 23 years old. There's a lot of time here for him to make a correction, obviously, if he gets the right people around him to have these conversations. But how hard is that when, when, you, when you have grown up in an area where you've got friends that are in your close circle that are trusted friends that, that you know, they – they probably love you. They probably care about you, but they might not be good for you. Zach Randolph comes to mind. Remember when he came to Portland? The Blazers drafted him, and it wasn't just Zebo who came to Portland. It was the Hoops family who came to Portland, and they had the diamond-encrusted emblems, and there were guns in the car, and there was you know Zebo getting pulled over downtown for street racing. There was a weapon in the car. The police responded numerous times to his residence as he was shooting guns off, and his friends were shooting guns off in the backyard. And, you know, it almost had kind of, um, you know, a Beverly Hillbillies theme to it, where, like, all of a sudden, Zach Randolph had money, and he had property, but he didn't really have people in his circle that knew how to kind of handle and manage him. And I know Raymond Brothers, his agent at the time, I talked to him numerous times, and he was like, you know, I can only do so much to a certain extent. My client ultimately needs to surround himself with the right people. But that's hard when you have come from a background where, you know, there there have been guns and crime involved. And Zebo had it around him his whole life. His brother went to prison. His brother Roger went to prison with, for a gun offense. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not here to say that – you know, your family of origin, no matter what it is, is not a very strong pull. Your family of origin can dictate so much about especially who you are at 23 years old because b before you've even really, like, figured out internally who you are. Like, right. John Morant has a lot of money, a lot of wealth, and a lot of fame, but he cannot erase, you know, what he's been raised around, the culture that he's around, and that is true for any of us. If you are raised in a family of origin that is, um, let's just say it's super pretentious and wealthy and rigid, you, there's a high likelihood you're going to be super pretentious and, and rigid in your personality. Like it goes, you know, in, in a lot of directions like that. But I think that with youth on his side and if, if he can get the right people around him again, your family of origin does not have to dictate who you become when you're 24, 25, 30, and 40. Well, it's going to be interesting what the NBA does because they've had an image problem in the past. I mean, remember back, you know, Allen Iverson and all the all the guys wearing the jerseys coming into the games, and they made a dress code, right? They try, really tried to clean mm -hmm. up their image, and I think the NBA might be trying to do that again with guns now, with guns being such a big topic uh, just in, like, general talking points and stuff like that. You know, the NBA is looking into this because, you know, because a jaw had that gun in Colorado – that gun could have been on the team plane, which is against the NBA CBA rules. So it would be more; it would be like a 50-game suspension if they found out that it was on the on the team plane, and Ja would be suspended for 50 games. Like it's gonna be really interesting to see what the NBA does here. 
because it, it, I don't think they have an image problem, but Jaw is so popular with kids and the you know the younger uh, generation of fans. Like my son, he's eight years old. He loves John Morant because he has cool dunks and cool blocks, and he watches YouTube highlights of him, and he thinks he's awesome. And it's hard for me as a father to be like, well, you can't really root for the guy because he's kind of a bad dude right now. Like, it's really hard for me to do that. But at the same time, like, he is only 23 years old. He has a lot of time to grow up. He is still a kid. Like, we all made mistakes at 23. I, I do want to see what the NBA does with this. And I want to see how Jaw reacts to this as well because you talk about Zach Randolph. And it's a good comparison because he went to Memphis and turned it around, became great for the um, the community over there. But he was a problem when he came to Portland as well. So, like, he got out of it, and he became a great citizen of uh, of the community over there. Can Ja do the same thing? I, I, I can't wait to watch it, man. It reminds me a little bit of Sebastian Telfair when he came to the Blazers. And, you know, remember Sebastian Telfair had a gun on the team plane in a pillowcase. <laughs> and it wasn't that long after he retired uh, that he got pulled over by police, and he had a bunch of semi-automatic weapons in his car. He went to prison for that. He got sentenced to that. You know, he got two and a half years in prison for that. I don't think he served very much of it, but I I always looked at that and I thought, gosh, he had every opportunity to, you know, better himself and take a different path. But I think that the, the draw of where you grew up, who was around you, who was in your circle, um, and frankly, maybe just being a little too young and ill-equipped to handle the success so it's a bad combination. Judah, where do you stand on the on the saga of Ja Morant? Man, I think it was like 2015 or sometime around there. Blazers and Grizzlies had a playoff series, and uh, you you caught up with Zebo in Memphis, yeah. and you wrote this column. I still remember it, and I, I just Googled it and found it again, and it really hits home in all of this. Uh, by the way, you're a good writer, John. Thank you. <laughs> um and you and Zebo just had some great interactions about this very topic and about how important it was for Zebo to mature and to separate himself from connections that were so familiar to his upbringing, but he needed to separate himself from those friends, those situations, those people in his corner in order to, to grow up. He says that his, his dad was an alcoholic. Uh, Zach Randolph's dad was an alcoholic. He said that, like you mentioned, his, his brother went to prison and we we know Zebo now in the light of the maturation that that he put on uh, that he put on display and had a great longer career than he otherwise would have had he not learned the hard way and I uh, you know Jaw is like so ridiculously good I'm I'm shocked that he's going through this but to me it, it seems more of an identity crisis with him in a backwards way than it is like. I don't know, maybe there's substance abuse involved. I really have no idea where he stands on that. But to me, it's more of like an identity thing. Like Shannon Sharp was saying, it's like, man, you you should know who you are. You're not, you know, what what all your friends growing up want you to be or, or think you are or what have you. But to me, it's more psychological than anything else with him. I think it's, uh, I think the NBA is doing what's best for the NBA but by giving him more a than, pause. It's more than the NBA. Nike put out a statement. Like, I don't think this is just the NBA trying to protect its image. I think it's a real problem. No, I, be, I mean, I think the NBA is doing what's best for itself, but I also think there is a blessing in there for Jaw if they can get him with the right people who can pull him aside and go, look, um, different rules for you now with a couple hundred million dollars in guaranteed contracts and you're 23 years old, uh, this ends one of two ways. And Zebo had that moment 
you know, I remember that. We went to Beale Street in Memphis, and it was between games and the Blazers uh, series against the Grizzlies that year. This was like 2015, it, spring of 2015, and Zebo walked down the street in Memphis, and the kids ran to him like he was Nelson Mandela in the streets. Like they ran to him and just they wanted to like touch his shirt, and they wanted to walk alongside him. And and I and by then he was like in his mid 30s, and we had a lot to talk about. And you're right, he talked about growing up with an alcoholic father and seeing drugs, and seeing people sell drugs and use drugs all around him. And then all of a sudden you got this money. Well, you know, we all know what happened to Randolph at the end of his NBA career. He got. He got arrested for marijuana possession. He had, like, a large quantity of marijuana that looked like it or appeared that it was set for distribution. And so I kind of looked back at that, and I went, gosh, did he did he ever really get away from it? I forgot he did, about that. <laughs> he did cut a plea deal, and he, uh, you know, he did not serve prison time for it. But he's now, as far as I know, I should reach back out to him, but as far as I know, you know, his his daughter is a hell of a club basketball player position for a, a scholarship in college. His kids are all growing up. But I always found Zebo. he was not a leader. Zach Randolph was a follower. And I don't mean that in a bad way. He just, some people are leaders and some people are followers. They're followers. And what I found about him was, if you put good people around him, I really do think he gravitates in the right direction. You put bad people around him, I think he gravitates in, in a bad direction. And I think a lot of a lot of people are that way. Like, not everybody's a leader. But I remember watching him in that series, and there was, um, there. you know, I saw him before one of the games. He was standing over there, and he was talking to somebody who looked like a rabbi, okay? And I'm not Jewish, but I, from a distance I went, that looks like a religious person who is Jewish. And I walked over, and I said to, you know, said to the guy, he just finished talking with Randolph, and I said, you know, uh, what were you guys talking about? And he said, I just returned from a trip to Israel. And Zach walked over and asked me, how was your trip to Israel? And and Zebo was curious about the world, and he was interested in talking to people. He talked to me about writing columns. He was fascinated by the process. And he says, how long does it take you to write a column? I never had an NBA player ask me that. How long does it take you to write after the game? And then he said, did you get good grades in writing when you were growing up? And I said, it's probably a lot like it was for you in basketball. It came very naturally to you. And he went, oh, okay, yeah. He, I, I found he was one of the most enjoyable people that I ever covered. And at the same time, I constantly worried about, like, where, where is this life going to take Zach Randolph? Is he going to end up broke? Is he going to end up in jail? Is he going to end up being a great dad, a bad dad? Like, I didn't know. And it looks to me like he mostly figured it out by the time, uh, you know, I, I think he'd be a great resource on this John Morant topic. I hope the NBA gets jaw with somebody like Zebo. Well, and, you know, how many of us really knew who we were We were at 23? How oh, many of us had ourselves figured out? I mean, we're <laughs> most of us are still a work in progress as well. And then you throw in, like, millions of dollars and fame and being under a microscope. I'm not trying to make excuses for John Morant. There's no excuse for brandishing a handgun on an Instagram Live in a nightclub. That's just stupid. That's stupid and dangerous. Like, fortunately for him, nobody got hurt. And this is not like necessarily an anti-gun rant either. The gun laws in this country are what they are. People can legally own weapons. I didn't know that about the collective bargaining agreement for the players and whatnot and how it's against the rules to have it on a team plane. But, you know, 
if you're going to own a weapon, your responsibility in being a weapon owner like that is to use it, store it properly, and not be dumb with it. That's simply just, you know, that's common sense. Yeah, I'm not well to, I don't want to defend yeah. Brian either, but isn't he just being a 23-year-old kid? Like, he's on social media flaunting off the stuff that he has, trying to yeah. make his life look great. Like, that's what 23-year-olds do, and that's what he's doing. It's just the problem is he has $100 million, and he's the face <laughs> of a franchise. Like, that's the only difference. Yeah, like, but I often find that in those circles, you need somebody in the circle to be like the voice of reason. And, you know, it's hard to find when you had a bunch of 23-year-old kids surrounded by other 23-year-old kids. It's hard to find somebody in that group who's like, hey, this is a really bad idea. Like, you should not have a gun on social media. You should not be doing that. You don't need to do that. Everybody already respects you. You don't need the credibility that comes with brandishing a weapon on social media or in a club or beating up a 17-year-old, for crying out loud, allegedly. Uh, I hope he finds his way out of it. I hope this story has uh, an ending that everybody can live with. Leave it here. you got the BFT statewide. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. So uh, Giannis uh, said that he stole a triple-double on Sunday night, last night. And today the NBA took it back. Uh, if you uh, are tuned into this, uh, I want to I know what you think of it. Do you have less respect for Giannis for trying to steal a triple-double? 503-417-7575. Uh, for people who don't know, he, uh, in, in uh, Sunday night's game, as Milwaukee was on their way to a 117-111 win, Giannis was one rebound shy against the Wizards of a triple-double um, for uh, points, assists, and rebounds. He had 23 points, he had 13 assists, and he was sitting on nine rebounds. So uh, at, at the end of the game, he hustled the ball down court, got near the rim that the Bucks were shooting at. No defender really tried to stop him because the game was over. He hesitated for a moment. You could see he was thinking about, like, how is this going to play? And then he intentionally shot the ball into the bottom of the rim before catching it for the 10th rebound. Now, after the game, he said, I kind of stole one. The on-site stat crew credited him with a missed shot and a 10th rebound on the play. The NBA reviews all stats from every game. They regularly make changes to correct errors or omissions. If you play Fantasy League, you know this. And they removed the last rebound today. According to league rules, for a field goal attempt to count as an official field goal, the player has to shoot with intent to score a field goal. The league is saying that was not a shot, therefore it cannot be a rebound. Do you have less respect for Giannis, or do you wave this off as a nothing burger? Anna, I want you to go first. You watched the video of this during the commercial break. Uh, less respect for Giannis, or no? Yeah, for sure. Less respect, and it's just silly. It's dumb, and it's silly. I can't believe he did that. It kind of reminded me of, like, there's a certain class of all-star in the league. Like, there are guys who are just barely all-stars. Like, maybe they make an all-star game or two, and you can say in their career, hey, they made an all-star game. And then there are repeat all-stars and you say multi-time all-star and then 
there are superstars who win MVPs, and we don't even talk about All-Star games. They're so above it. We say, you know, MVP or former MVP or two-time MVP. Giannis is in royalty. And for him to for in my book, like I get it, like, but for him to fall prey to teammates egging him on for the bench and to dribble down the court and take this shot off the bottom of the rim. This smacks to me like of a, of a billionaire picking up a penny on the sidewalk. Uh, like I just, I kind of shook my head at it. Steven, what do you make of Giannis? I don't lose respect for him, but I do hate it a lot. And uh, the reason I hate it is because the triple-double is a fake stat. Like, it's not even a real stat. It just, it's a, it's a term that I believe some announcer just made up on the spot when they saw someone have 10, you know, 10 points, 10 rebounds, 10 assists. And they're like, oh, it's a triple-double. Like, it's not a real stat, and it doesn't necessarily help your team win so I, I just I just hate that guys chase it and go for it. it. It's just a like you said, it's it's a minor league move, right? Like you, you're not the varsity, you're not you're in the majors, you're in the minors with that type of move. And Giannis is way above that. Like it has been done before. Ricky Davis did it back in the day, but that's Ricky Davis. It's not Giannis who could be a top five player of all time when it's all said and done. So I don't lose respect for it because it's not that big of a deal, but at the same time, it's just it's kind of a whack move, I'll be honest. Like, I, I expected him not to do that, and I expect that triple-doubles shouldn't matter to him, but obviously they do. Judah, lose respect for Giannis, or you're okay with it? <laughs> okay with it? I love it. <laughs> Judah had money That's on the triple-double. That's why. I did. You could, you could did you really? No, he no, did. I won't but confirm or deny the fact. You're okay with it, though. It doesn't bother you. Come on. Much ado about nothing. It's fun. We want fun. We want fun things in the regular season of the NBA, right? Like, to me, I can only watch so much regular season basketball. I really get tuned in for the postseason. So when fun things go viral, yeah, I like it. I don't have a problem with the NBA taking it away, but I certainly don't mind him doing it. It's fun. Puts a smile on my face, and that's what we're all going for anyway. Is the biggest sin from Giannis that he didn't sell it better? That he should have driven down... Made it look like he was going in for a layup and just left it a little short and then grabbed it real quick. Like, is that isn't that the bigger sin here that everybody knew that he was a bad faker? It'll, it'll become its own skill, you know, like the art of the missed free throw at the end of the game when you need the offensive board to put it back. I think uh, there will be the art of the uncontested free layup miss in order to get the <laughs> rebound for a triple double. He's just he's Giannis is a trailblazer. I will say, uh, trouble is if it's a fake stat, does that mean? Is it never tied into contract language and things like that? You know how some of those stat things can be tied into contracts? That was my other thought as well. And if, if that's the case, then eh, I might have a little bit of a problem. But is this any different than, okay, let me just play devil's advocate. Like, I didn't like it. I think it was Bush League. But I also have seen coaches see that players, like Andy Reid, this came up with Andy Reid and the Chiefs. Like, there have been players on his team that got incentives for catches, for touchdowns. And he makes an effort to feed those guys the ball if it's the last regular season game of the year and it's kind of a meaningless game. He makes an effort to get those guys their numbers because he wants his players happy. How is that different? I Well, I don't know that that's entirely different. I'm a fan of that as well. I would say, though, like if you're the GM writing up those contracts before the year, you know who your head coach is. You know who your quarterback is. And frankly, if you're the GM, you're – you're not a penny pincher. Hopefully, if at the end of the year in the NFL, your team has won a certain amount of games to where that last game of the season is not to like, you know, calling a play to make sure McCole Hardman gets his fifth catch and therefore has 60 catches on the year or whatever to get the bump. Like, all, all it's going to do is help you win and get the one seat. So it could be a win-win at the end of the day. But 
I don't know that I have a whole problem with it. I, I like guys having fun, and I like teammates helping each other out to make more money. I'm a fan of that. I mean, it's not a new thing, right? Mo Harkless did this in Portland where he had to shoot 35% on three-pointers to get a $500,000 bonus, and he just stopped shooting threes. That because, was stupid. Because he was at, <laughs> cause he was at 35.1%. See, that's, that's the opposite of what I'm a fan of. But, yeah, but so Mo, a, you're wide open. Shoot it. Bro. I'm going to make 500 Gs. Why would I shoot this? Like, I'm not, I, like, so I don't blame him if it's for money. Like, that's cool, I guess. But, like, just yeah, but money when it's, like, hurting the team on the court is different than money when it's, like, helping a guy get a catch in the NFL, I think. Do you remember? Do you guys remember Ricky Davis? This is probably before your time. Well, Stephen just brought him up in two thousand three when he shot at it. <laughs> he shot at the other team's basket. Is that what happened with Ricky Davis, Stephen? Yeah, he was one rebound away. Uh, I'm frantically googling and YouTubing Jerry Sloan's reaction to it because it was really <laughs> funny. Yeah, he shot at the other team's basket. So that he he tried to at least, but it's illegal according to the rule books. So that he could get the rebound, and uh, I vaguely remember that there was some kind of uh, there was some kind of there was something at stake for that. Was it a triple double as well? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was gonna be his first triple double. Uh, they were up by twenty five points with six seconds left in the game. The Cavs were, and he went to the other side of the court, shot one, and missed the layup to try to get the rebound, but they didn't count it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and you know what? I wondered, uh, the best part of the Giannis call is the broadcaster is saying, well, he's going to fall one rebound shy of the uh, triple-double. And then as he's dribbling down, the broadcaster says, I think he's aware (laughs) because he looked like he was going to go in. Here's uh, here's Jerry Sloan's reaction to it. This is awesome. uh, To the Ricky Davis. So he got the ball, Ricky Davis, at the end of the game, six seconds, went to the other hoop. Shot it, missed it, tried to give up the rebound. Here was the, the legendary coach's response. They, he shot at the wrong basket. And he was trying to embarrass somebody by doing that. Deshaun fouled him. I would have fouled him, too. I would have knocked him on his ass. <laughs> Jerry Sloan, I like it. He's talking about Deshaun Stevenson at the time. Yeah, so it's like uh, I'm, I'm actually yeah. surprised nobody on the Wizards, like, confronted Giannis. I know Giannis is huge and it's Giannis, but, like, I might have done that if I was playing the game. I might have gone up to him and said Yeah, that. I wondered why that player, that Wizards player, I didn't see who it was, let him just dribble by. Like, yeah, I get it. You're down six, t- clock's over, the game's over, but, you know, I'm not giving that guy a free path to the basket. If you want, Even if he's going, if he, especially if he's going in to embarrass you. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up, top of the hour, Anna will do the five at five, five biggest stories going on in sports or otherwise uh, by Anna's viewpoint. Uh, That's how we've sort of positioned that segment. I think it works. I think it's fun. It allows me to sit back and take pot shots while she uh, points out the big stories. Uh, We both spoke today as part of career day at a high school. I mentioned it off the top of the show. I was a wee bit nervous in the uh, first session. Uh, talking to kids. I don't know what it is about getting in front of a group of uh, teenagers, but maybe it's that I feel like they're judging me. Uh, Maybe I'm out of my element. I can talk sports. I can talk writing. I should be comfortable talking about these things. You were over in an adjacent classroom talking about television media and news and the news business. Yeah. 
And uh, how did that go? Were, were all the cheers coming from my classroom? Oh, my were gosh. They, were they distracting from, for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Real like the chants, people going, this is the greatest speech ever. I'm mm -hmm. motivated. Yeah, yeah. No? That's all that I was hearing. No, you know, it's funny thing. I told the kids, like I'm even like sweaty palms right now thinking about it. High schoolers are the hardest audience ever. Because I, whenever I have to speak to high schoolers at a career day or something, I, it's like I regress back to being in high school. I suddenly am very worried about what my hair looks like. Yes. What am I going to wear? And uh, I have, I, it's the hardest crowd. Uh, the crowd this morning was, a, it was nicer. They actually asked questions at the end. I, I don't leave a lot of Q&A at the end yeah. time because that could be awkward when you go, any a, questions? It's tearful. No questions, no. Yeah. and you're just staring at each other <laughs> yeah. for the remaining two minutes, and you're trying to fill time. So I don't, I don't generally leave a lot at the end there. I'm like, look, if you've got questions, here's my contact information. You know, reach out to me. I would like to know if I fired him up. I try to prepare him for life. Yeah. I didn't necessarily prepare him to be in sports media. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, I gave him some, hey, stay fluid, be adaptable, be mercurial. You were when you were six years old. When you're 46, you got to be adaptable. That's solid. You know, I went with that, you know. We'll see more here. The 5 at 5 is next. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Every 5 o'clock hour is the happy hour here on this radio show. Appreciate everybody who makes this show part of their day. Anna's going to give us the 5 at 5. I'm going to comment on the five stories that she picks out. We've talked uh, earlier in the show with Matt Prave of 24-7 Sports about the Oregon Ducks and what he's looking for this week as they play in the Pac-12 tournament beginning on Thursday for the Ducks. Tournament starts Wednesday, but the Ducks are in the top four, so they get a first-round bye in Las Vegas at T-Mobile Arena. And uh, they will play likely Arizona State in the opening round of the tournament. Uh, or excuse me, they'll likely play Washington State in the open round of the tournament. Uh, meanwhile, Oregon State will play Arizona State in the opening round. So, Ducks get the bye on Wednesday. Beavers play on Wednesday against Arizona State. 8.30 for those of you paying attention to Wednesday's first round matchups in Vegas. Anna, you ready for the five at five? The five biggest stories as you see them. Born ready. Born ready. I'm curious to see what you will add in here on this great Monday. All right. The five at five. Number one story as Anna sees it. Go. I can't believe we're actually discussing this, but we're going to do it. I know you guys mentioned it earlier, and I know you've been waiting for this. Rumors that Tom Brady may be unretiring and jumping back in. Rich Eisen, the NFL Network, is taking some time on his radio show today to talk about this saying that he's hearing about the possibility of this happening with Brady, that he was told by more than one person at the Combine that Brady may, in fact, be unretiring. No, I'm not doing it. I'm not buying into it. And that the one place the folks are saying to keep an eye out for is Miami. Miami, everybody. 
Meanwhile, Tom Brady's been hanging out on his new 12 Angels yacht. He's upgraded to a 77-foot super yacht, hanging out in Hollywood, Florida. It's, uh, you know, just a little boat, there's, just a little vessel. There's a fable about this, about a little shepherd boy who repeatedly fools the villagers into thinking that a wolf is attacking the flock. And then when the actual wolf appears, the kid calls for help and the villagers go, nah, and all the sheep get eaten. Don't be a sheep. This Tom Brady thing, this is designed to uh, generate clicks and eyeballs. If he unretires, shame on him. I've got fatigue with Tom Brady is what I'm saying. You can't cry wolf this many times from the hillside without people finally going, ah, I don't believe it. Tom Brady, uh, if you do come back, I'm not buying into it, and I'm not participating. Number two in our five <laughs> at five. Uh, Derek Carr and the Saints have agreed to a four-year contract. They're uh, bringing the veteran quarterback to New Orleans for, you know, $150 million across four seasons. He'll be guaranteed $60 million, $10 million of his salary in his third season. Will be vested after his first year in New Orleans. Comes out to about $37.5 million per season. This is for a nine-year NFL veteran. Hey, look, there's a lot of cases of quarterbacks who get a change of scenery and then go on to have greatness, um, you know, and play in a Super Bowl. Kerry Collins with the New York Giants. Rich Gannon with the Raiders. Brad Johnson with the Buccaneers. Um, Matt Hasselbeck, even, you know, going to the Seattle Seahawks and Kurt Warner in Arizona, Drew Brees, for crying out loud, um, you know, ending up in New Orleans after being in, with the Chargers, Peyton Manning to the Broncos. Um, how about Nick Foles, Jimmy Garoppolo, like, and Tom Brady, who we've just talked about. There's great examples of this. I'm just not sure that the New Orleans Saints are the team that uh, you know that that has all the pieces. I don't think that that uh, Derek Carr was the problem with the Raiders, so I wish him well. But I don't see the team around him built in a way that means he's the missing piece, as I mentioned with some of those other quarterbacks. And for that reason, I think this is going to be an okay story that has a unpredictable outcome. And so uh, Derek Carr. To the Saints, good for him. Change of scenery will be good. And maybe the Raiders will go on to prove he wasn't the problem by the way they play and the way they conduct themselves. But this doesn't feel like the ticket to a Super Bowl for Derek Carr. And, you know, for that reason, I'm not all that excited for him. Number. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, with, yeah. that, with that said, John, uh, odds before the signing by the Saints to win the Super Bowl, 40 to 1. Odds after the signing to win the Super Bowl, 40 to 1. <laughs> Yeah, I would I would improve them a little bit. I was I thought you were gonna go like twenty five to one, thirty to one, but he's not a. Uh, this isn't Peyton Manning from the Colts to the Broncos. This is um, this is Marcus Mariota to the Falcons, right? And and maybe maybe the Saints are better than the Falcons. I think they won seven games last year, but it, it's not a uh, it's not a difference maker. Uh, what are we on? Three or four? I'm writing it down and I still don't know. <laughs> Three. We're on number three. Number three. <laughs> Hardest part. Hardest part counting. of this. Yeah. Uh, tip of the cap to Washington State women's basketball team. The Cougars busted the bracket. They're in the, in the tournament. They uh, danced off with the Women's Pac-12 Conference Tournament Championship yesterday. They came into the tournament as a number seven seed. 
And they upset number four, Utah, and number 21, Colorado, setting up Sunday's showdown with number 16, UCLA. They beat UCLA 65-61. This makes the first time in 82 years that a Wazoo basketball team, men's or women's, has won a conference tournament champion title. So they will be headed into the NCAA tournament. It's it's pretty remarkable, especially if you go back and you look at like the last 25 years of Washington State women's basketball. I think in that span at Washington State since the since 2000, okay, 23 seasons, they have only been better than 500 in conference play once in 23 seasons. And Cammy Etheridge, the coach that was hired by Pat Chun a couple of years ago, has taken that program to legitimacy. They are 23-10 and 10 this season. They're going to the NCAA tournament. I had a photographer at the game yesterday in Las Vegas. If you want to see some celebration photos that restore your faith in competition and in sports, go to johnconzano.com and check out the photo gallery. It's legit tears. It's players on the court performing snow angels. It's everything we love about sports. Really inspiring to see them win it. And it was a seven seed against a five seed in the championship game. Seven against five. It's truly March Madness. Will the men's tournament be as wild? We'll find out this week. Anna, number four. So much blood. So much blood. Justin Turner goes down with a gruesome injury today during the Red Sox spring training game against the Tigers. It's square in the face by a pitch from Detroit's Matt Manning in the first inning. There's just blood all over the place as he hit the ground in pain. Uh, His wife has provided an update on his status, saying that uh, he got 16 stitches. He's now resting at home. He did manage to avoid any fractures. The scans were done, and they came back clean. Uh, So he's on his way to healing, but ouch. Matt Manning, the pitcher who threw the pitch, he, the expression on his face afterwards said it all. I mean, he, could, he, he looked uh, completely concerned for another baseball player that got hit in the, hit in the face. 16 stitches. Ouch. Um, 38-year-old Justin Turner. He's lucky that it's not a more serious injury. But I also think he's not out of the woods yet. I, I want to see him come back, get in the batter's box, and have some success at the plate because we all know after an injury like that, it can be a, a daunting thing. Finally, number five in Anna's five at five. I don't know why I'm so curious about this, but I just kind of loosely have my eye on Arch Manning okay. and the quarterback battle in Texas as he tries, I guess this is the storyline, to unseat the incumbent Quinn Ewers from the starting job. So this is a battle of former five-star recruits. Should be an interesting time. Uh, with the Texas coach, Steve Sarkeesian, saying that he's not worried about who's going to be on the cover of what magazine next week. He's more focused on each guy, focusing on what they need to do to develop. Uh, I just, it's just interesting to me. It's, it's the whole, you know, he's another Manning. How's he going to do? A lot of is pressure he on him. Buckle to the pressure. Or is he going to yeah. rise to the occasion? I, these stories just interest me. The the thing that I'm interested in is kind of the sideshow that will go on if he doesn't start, because Steve Sarkeesian, the coach, can talk all he wants about 
this is a competition. Quinn, Quinn Ewers is our guy. He was our starter last year. But there's $3.5 million in name, image, likeness, endorsement money attached to Arch Manning. <laughs> so if he doesn't start, what are the boosters and donors at Texas going to do if Ewers starts the season and Texas drops a, a game or two in the non-conference? Like, it's a legit question to be asking in this era of name, image, likeness. How much pressure comes from the owners of the team? Yeah, in college, we now have owners because we have people who are invested, who are, you know, basically uh, paying players to go to school. So uh, we're going to start to see this stuff rear its head. If Arch Manning doesn't start, uh, there is about $3.5 million that will not be happy in Texas. If he does start, is it because of the $3.5 million? Or is it because he deserves to be on the field? Talk about tentacles that come with NIL. That's one of them. That's our five at five. Five biggest stories going on in sports. I'm excited for the men's Pac-12 tournament this week. Starts Wednesday. The opening round games. The top four seeds get buys. Oregon's got a buy. I am picking the Ducks to get to the title game. I think they're they're going to. Uh, I think they'll win their opening round game against probably against Washington State, and then I think they'll get UCLA in a game that they, that they can win. Uh, injury to Jalen Clark, one of UCLA's players, certainly a factor there. But I also think a factor is that Oregon's plan for a whole bunch in this tournament. Uh, on the bottom half of the bracket, I'm reluctantly picking Arizona. Um, I don't blame you if you pick someone else. Arizona lost six conference games this year. They are beatable. And five of those six games came to teams that are not seated above them in the standings, So, including a game to Oregon. So I think uh, it'll be Arizona against Oregon in the conference championship game. Steven, do you have a feel on the Pac-12 championship bracket? Uh, I, I, I do like your pick of Oregon. Uh, I do think that they're going to lose to UCLA. But I actually, I kind of think Washington State it will get them in the first round. I'm sorry, in the second round. Mm. Um, Washington State's one of those teams that's played really well back half of the season. They almost squeaked into that number four spot. You look at some of the Ken Palm rankings, like they are an actual good team that has had some bad luck this year. I think Washington State will actually beat Oregon in that second round. I like UCLA to win the tournament. I, I think UCLA is head and shoulders above everybody in the Pac-12. You talk about Arizona. I think they're a good team, but they're not a great team. And I think UCLA is a great team that has realistic national championship expectations. Uh, and it should be like, I might be picking them to win the entire bracket. Uh, when the national seeds come out, it just be interesting to see what their what their matches are. But I like uh, UCLA, and I, I think Arizona will make it as well. So UCLA, UCLA Arizona, uh, just chalk there, and I think UCLA takes it. Uh, Michael and Eugene listening on Fox Sports. Eugene's called in. He has a thought to offer on the conference tournament. Michael, what do you got? John, I missed you guys, but uh, the previous take, UCLA is not going to win anything important nationally because – the players, I have it on good authority, Johnny Jazang, very close family friend. Nick Cronin is a total tyrant, and he will be gone within two to three years because his players cannot stand him. And Dana's players, he's having trouble with messaging this year, but next year is the year. So that is one thing, sir. Uh, I loved your take on the Big 12 and Big 10 planting seeds they're trying to destabilize the conference colin coward is a weenie i know he is sourced sometimes but he works for fox and guess who's not bidding 
on the Pac-12 media rights, Fox. Yeah. You just yeah. have to read between the tea leaves, which you and Wilner have expertly done. I do yeah. think we are going to sign a new deal. I do think you are working on something incredible that I can't wait to read, probably talking about some counterintelligence. These consulting firms are up to no good. They're trying to destabilize. Yeah. Of course the Big Ten wants Oregon for $30 million or $40 million. Do you think we would ever go there and take no. less? No, no, and here's why. Here's why. It's a great question. Um, you know, look, uh, yes, of course there's misinformation and people trying to destabilize the conference. There's a lot of agendas out there. Um, consulting firms are driving the narrative. But anybody who's talking to people who are actually involved with the decision, and there are very few people in that circle, uh, knows that the conference feels really good about where they are. They don't feel great because they lost UCLA and USC. Like, there's obviously a problem there. But um, Oregon's not leaving the Pac-12 to go to the Big Ten, and the reason isn't money. The reason is Oregon would love to be in a conference of one that had an automatic berth to the college football playoff. What does Oregon covet? Think about this, people. What does Oregon covet more than anything? It wants a national championship in football. It wants college football playoff berths in football. If you're Oregon, you do not leave a 10-team Pac-12 to go to the Big Ten for any amount of money to compete against Ohio State, Michigan, Wisconsin, Penn State, USC to be. You don't do that. You don't go to that conference and go, oh, let's make this harder. The objective at Oregon is simple. They want to get Phil Knight a championship. You get to the playoff by staying right where you are in the Pac-10 or Pac-12 or whatever it's going to be called, and then you uh, ask Phil Knight to help subsidize you. He's been doing that essentially for you know decades now, and he'll continue to do that. Um, look, if you are somebody who wants to talk college basketball, stick around. We're going to do more of it and college football as well. We'll talk about Oregon State's spring, and we'll talk more about the Pac-12 tournament coming up. you got the bald-faced truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Nick Daschle, you can read him on Oregon Live. He covers Oregon State. He's joining us here in just a moment. Steven Lake Oswego, can't believe something I said earlier in the show, and he has called in. Steve, what what, what did I say? What, what nonsense did I spew? John, <laughs> that's why I love you. Um, about, I don't know, a month ago when UCLA was coming up here to play Oregon, you said at that time Oregon was probably going to beat UCLA because you didn't think UCLA was a very good team. Now you're saying Oregon's going to beat UCLA in the Pac-12 champions. John, whatever you're smoking, give me some. Well, yeah, it's like <laughs> there ain't no way in the world that Oregon's going to beat UCLA, even without Clark. Then I could, there's no way. It's not, it's not a chance. I mean, UCLA playing the number two in the country. They're 27 and four. Oregon is what 18 and 13 or something. True. Like yes. They barely beat Stanford, on, mm -hmm. and, and, and then they lost to Washington. Come on, John. This is why I like Oregon. This is why I love this tournament, too. And look, call back later in the week after they've played this game because I do think Oregon will play on Friday night. I guess it'll be next week that we're talking, 6 o'clock on the Pac-12 Networks in uh, what will be a semifinal game, Oregon against UCLA. I, that's how I think it's going to shake out. But I like the Ducks here. They're playing for a whole bunch. I think you know they may need that win to get themselves into the NCAA tournament. I think UCLA is – 
you know, going to show up, maybe not with the eye of the tiger in this tournament, without Jalen Clark, their best defensive player. I may sense a letdown here, much in the same way that we saw a letdown by Stanford and Utah in the Pac-12 women's tournament. Stanford and Utah much in the same position as uh, UCLA and Arizona are in the men's bracket. Neither one of them made the championship game. That's why it's March, and we call it madness. Nick Daschle is in Vegas now. He's joining us. Am I crazy for picking Oregon to beat UCLA in this bracket? No, I've been saying that. I've been saying that for all season that people keep writing off the Ducks, and I'm they're, they're, you can't write them off. They're, they've got too much talent, and I, I know they're inconsistent and all that, but when they're playing well, I mean, I don't know they're UCLA good. Yeah. But – they're they're one of the best three teams in the conference when they're when they're playing well and I mean they've won their last three um, shoot I, I I mean I kind of disagree with you a little bit on the on the letdown thing with Stanford Utah I just think that whole those top seven or eight teams in the Pac-12 are all pretty good and Stanford is just a hair little hair off this year from being last year so I I don't know that Stanford was a little off, but I, UCLA could easily lose to Oregon on on um, Friday if, if if that matchup takes place, especially if Jalen Clark is a plan. Um, I definitely could see that. And if they beat UCLA, I think they're in the tournament. Yeah, I, I think, think they I have think to win the Pac-12 tournament. No, I don't think they have to win it, but I feel like Oregon is now sitting with a first-round bye, which is everything you need that really benefits you. It doesn't benefit you so much on Thursday as much as it does on Friday or Saturday if you're playing on in this tournament. And I, I, I just think Oregon is at a position where it's like, hey, you know, play your way into the tournament. Can you win? Can you beat the winner of Washington State, Cal? Probably Washington State. And then can you beat UCLA? If so, you're probably in the NCAA tournament. That's a lot for Infali Dante and Will Richardson. That's a lot at stake for them. Uh, you've been there. Uh, I was there over uh, the late last week as well. There all sorts of conference tournaments going on. Have you caught any of the WCC tournament, any of the Mountain West tournament? What's the flavor on the streets of Vegas? I covered the Pi- Portland Pilot men on <clears throat> Friday night. I just got done covering the Portland Pilot women um, just half hour ago. They they beat uh, Pacific, and they're in the WCC championship game against Gonzaga tomorrow at one o'clock. If they win, they're going to the, they're going to the dance. Michael Meek has done a great job at UP. What what has he done in your mind? You know, here's another great success story. A George Fox guy who goes to UP, but what's he getting at UP that that makes them winners? Well, he's certainly not afraid to recruit internationally. He's got, I think, I counted ten players from either Australia or New Zealand on the roster. And a lot of them can, they can, I mean, Alex Fowler is a good player. If you haven't seen her play yet, she's, I mean, she's legit. I mean, today she had 29 points, six boards, four assists and five steals. And they needed every one of those, those, those to, to beat Pacific. But um, yeah, he just, you know, they, they, they play, you know, they, they can play full court. They don't, they don't have a, you know, a particular, you know, style that they that they have to play. They can just do a lot of things, and and you know they're doing it without probably their Haley Andrews, probably their second best player behind um, you know Alex Fowler, and and um, I mean they're, they're pretty motivated. I don't know they could beat Gonzaga tomorrow. Gonzaga is pretty good, but they they gave Gonzaga games the first two times they played. So I mean it's one game for everything. I 
I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't discount Portland's chances tomorrow. Yeah, I remember the last time they won the event, it it got interrupted by a pandemic. They did not get to dance, so to speak, in the NCAA tournament. So here they are knocking on the door again. How do they match up with Gonzaga? This is not an unbeatable Gonzaga team. They they lost a game this season in the uh, in the in the conference play, but. How how does this matchup go for you? You've you've seen them play a little bit. Well, they're twenty eight. I haven't seen Gonzaga play a lot, but I know they have. They they can shoot the three. They're twenty eight and three. They're going to get in the NCAs whether they win tomorrow or not. I think because they're in the top twenty five, and uh, you know they've got they, they they just they've got some shooters, and and you know if they get hot, it's you know it's it's it, it, they're a hard team to beat. But they're physical, and um, they they just they. They manhandled BYU today um, in, in the semifinal and won pretty easy. And so, I mean, there's only been a couple teams that have given, given Gonzaga, you know, a game in in conference play this year. But Portland was one of those two teams. So, uh, I mean, they, Portland, Portland, this, there's four players on this team that played on that on that 2020 team, including Fowler. Um, they, you know, they remember they 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 and they know what they need to do against Gonzaga. So. Again, they won't be the favorites by any stretch, but you know, one game it, it, and they're not that, and they're not outclassed, so they got a shot tomorrow. Yeah. But as a side note, in the WCC, the conference hired Stu Jackson as the new commissioner of the conference. Really interesting hire. Got has some West Coast ties. Has some ties to the Big East and in basketball, and you know he. Uh, you know, he elevated the Big East into one of the best conferences in the country. It's a really interesting hire by the WCC. How do you like it? They announced him and introduced him today. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't pay a lot of attention to the interview. I just, I, I remember I, I walked around a little bit before the, before the women's game today, and I, I asked a couple of people, you know, why, why Stu Jackson, and the answer was basketball. I mean, and and with basketball, you know, all roads lead back to Gonzaga, so. I assume there's some of that, you know, that maybe he's got some some magic that can keep Gonzaga interested and sticking around. I, I mean, I, I don't you think Gonzaga is leaving? I, I just, no, I think, I, that's yeah. my. I mean, I, I don't think I don't think they should. I don't think they should unless the money is just so overwhelming. But because I think if they go to the Big Twelve, welcome to being ten and eight in league. I mean. <laughs> That's a different. That's a different animal playing in the Big Twelve versus the WCC. Yeah, uh, you, but you've you've yeah. proven you can get to the the you know the, you can get to the Final Four through the WCC. So unless they're throwing a windfall at you that is a game changer financially, I think you sit tight if you're Gonzaga. And you know I think this is all about exploration and kicking the tires and and such. But I don't think that you uh, you disrupt your success. Like that would be insane. Uh, I mean, maybe the money is just going to, is so much you just can't pass it up. But, but if you go to the Big Twelve, you're just another team in that league. You're a national program right now. I don't know that you're a national program. You go to the Big Twelve and start losing a bunch of games there. Right now, you know you can you can schedule you know a bunch of you know really elite non-conference games, knowing you know you're going to go sixteen and two or seventeen and one in the WCC, and you know get in the you know get yourself a couple of buys in the in the WCC tournament and I don't know maybe maybe it's boring I don't know but <laughs> it just seems like it works Nick Dashell with us uh, covers Oregon State he's in Vegas um, the Oregon State men 
We'll have an opening round game uh, against uh, Arizona State on Wednesday. Uh, not a great matchup for them, but how how is Oregon State playing? Can they can they you know get in this game and stay in this game against Arizona State? It's the nightcap, eight thirty on Wednesday night. You know, last time they, I, I kind of like their draw with Arizona State and then you know USC. If for some reason they were to win, because those are two teams they actually played with uh, this year. Oregon State gave they 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 should have beaten Arizona State when they played in Corvallis. Um, I don't know. I, I I didn't like the way they played the last weekend of the of the of the season. And I you know you kind of wonder if they're you know some of these younger guys are hitting a wall. I don't know. Maybe it was just a a bad weekend. I don't know. They did play pretty well against Oregon. So and that was two weeks ago. So yeah. I mean, I would if I'm if I'm Oregon State, I'd much rather play. I'd much rather play Arizona State than Washington State right now. It's Washington State on fire and and there's other teams that they just don't match up with in terms of size so i i think arizona state's a team they they, they can play with i don't know if they'll beat them but they can play with those, that team and if for some reason they were to get past you know arizona state usc is a team they have definitely played with they lost by one down 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 in la and they beat usc at home so i mean that's a, that's a team you know they would like to play because they got some confidence against that team yeah, in Arizona State is interesting. I saw quite a bit of them up close. They are very balanced. They have uh, they have some nice moments, and then they have some lapses. And they're not a great shooting team, so you can get into an ugly game with them. But and they what Arizona State really lacks is they don't have a star. Like they don't have a guy that they can go to in a tough possession and say, "Hey, we need a bucket here, take over." They don't have that player. They're just very balanced. They have about five or six players that all are very similar, and you know they, they're a threat to get four or five people in double figures on a good game. But I've seen them have some really bad shooting games, and Oregon State with nothing to lose, who knows in that game? I I'd still would pick Arizona State nine times out of ten to to win that matchup. Uh, Nick Dashell with us. Uh, spring football for Oregon State starting tomorrow. Jonathan Smith talked today with some media about his quarterback room and. You know what he's trying to work on this spring. What are you most interested in seeing in spring football from Oregon State? Well, the quarterback thing is obviously going to be on a lot of people's minds. It'll be interesting to see, you know, what DJ looks like in a in a Beaver practice uniform and you know, the competition there. But I'm I'm really interested in what happens at, at a couple of positions on defense because you know they lost two guys at quarterback to the NFL draft. Uh, that's going to be tough to replace, and they don't have any just obvious players that are going to jump right in. Now they've been recruiting at a higher level each year since you know Johnson's been around, so the the talent pool is deeper. But there's not a you know guy that just other than maybe Jaden Robinson, he's probably got one of the cornerbacks, but but he hasn't proven himself at an Alex Austin or Rajon Wright level yet. And so I think this spring is going to be interesting to see who who they you know, throw into those positions to see who, who wins the, wins those jobs. And the other one is the inside linebacker. I mean, they lost, you know, they lost their two starting linebacker, inside linebackers, Spates and, and, and Fisher Morris, and then also Jack Coletto. So they've got a lot of opportunity there for younger guys to step in. And that's obviously a key position because Oregon State generally – you know they they funnel everything to their inside linebackers as far as tackles and, and um, 
you know, so that that those two positions to me are, are going to be pretty key to watch. Yeah, and I, you know, look, I know everybody talks about, you know, expectations being a problem. Have you noticed any changes kind of with Jonathan Smith and his approach, you know, to the spring, or is it the same old, same old? Yeah, he kind of just keeps his head down. He, you know, he, he, he's, he's all about ball. He doesn't, he's not out there trying to get, you know, more, more publicity and everything. He, I mean, he's, he just likes, I mean, I've talked to him twice now since the bowl game. He's, he's hard to get a hold of because he's just interested, you know, and signing classes and looking at film and, and whatnot. And it's, it's, um, I mean, I, I mean, we'll see. We'll see what happens in spring. We'll see. You know, we'll see any changes. That's that's kind of the first real time you're you're hanging around the team, and when you can see whether you know things have changed a little. But I, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, they all seem you know pretty pretty grounded. Pretty you know. I don't. I don't see anybody on the staff that's you know. I, no, I, I, I. To me, the, the the key thing is who takes over all those. You know, another thing is. Who takes over all those leadership roles? I mean, they lost so many guys as leaders. You know, Jaden Grant and Kipper and and the cornerbacks and Spates and you know even you know just a lot of guys that have been around the program. A lot of a lot of their, five of their six captains, and so they got to find new guys to you know lead and motivate and things like that. I mean, because the off season is really where is where you build this team, and you got to have players that you know get guys out of bed and get out there and run and lift and all that stuff. And you know, that's where they're going to find out, you know, who, you know, how, how much they really wanted after winning 10 games, you know, can this, can they come back and do it again? You know, we don't know that. Yeah. And I think, you know, people have talked about Jonathan Smith and asked, you know, would anybody be able to hire him away? I always come back to, he fits Oregon state like he fits nowhere else. Still, though, we've seen coaches jump. What's your feeling on him as the forever guy in Corvallis? I mean, I wouldn't say he's forever, but I, I, I think his ne- if there's a next stop for him, it's probably the NFL. But that's a ways off to me. I think. I, I, I think he's here for a. You know, his his son is going to be. He's a freshman in high school. He's got two young. You know, two younger kids i mean corvallis is you know they talk about what a great town it is to raise kids i mean i could see him being around at least until his kids are pretty much through high school so i mean what eight ten years of that maybe um but you know who knows i mean with college guys you you don't ever know for sure but he doesn't seem like a guy that you know is looking for a do you think he'd make a good nfl coach I don't know, and I don't know whether, you know, whether, I don't know what, what I'm saying NFL, I don't know whether I'm saying offensive coordinator or, you know, a head coach, yeah. I don't know. Right. Um, but, I mean, shoot, Oregon State's going to be paying him $5 million this next, you know, his, his new contract has got him at around $5 million. I mean, how, how much more does the guy need? I, I don't know. And I don't see him chasing headlines. You know, I don't see him, you know, wanting – you know, wanting to be an SEC guy or or some a Big Ten, I don't. He doesn't strike me as that. But again, I mean, we you know we don't know for sure. But that, that's my gut feeling is that 
you know, if he was ever to leave, it would be for some type of NFL opportunity. But, but I, I, I don't think he's going anywhere. As long as Oregon State takes care of him and, you know, they get give him the resources. And, you know, Scott Barnes, is, you know, he seems to be moving heaven and earth to make sure they got everything they need. And, um, you know, as long as they got that, I, I don't think he's leaving anytime soon. Nick Daschle, I appreciate you. I will see you at uh, T-Mobile Arena or at a practice uh, coming soon. Thank you for joining us. All right, we'll see you. There he is, Nick Daschle. You can read him on Oregon Live. Covers Oregon State, joins us on this program, does a great job with the Beavers. Uh, I don't have a lot of hope that Wayne Tingle's team can get out of the opening round of the Pac-12 tournament on Wednesday. But uh, what I do think they need to do is get into the transfer portal. Uh I had a complete breakdown of the Pac-12 tournament written by Andrew Martin that we published on johnconzano.com today. And one of the questions uh, Andrew raised was, hey, it's a little puzzling to look around this conference and see so many coaches like Bobby Hurley at Arizona State. He has six players that he got out of the portal that are contributing players. And to see Oregon State struggle in the portal. We'll see if Wayne Tinkle and his staff can get in there and do some damage and get the program moving in the right direction next season. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I want to talk about fatigue for just a second. No, I'm not talking about you're tired, you got up early. No, I'm not talking about, hey, you uh, you had a workout, 90-minute workout in the gym. You're cramping up. I want to talk about fatigue in sports when it comes to topics. It came up earlier in the show today. I have fatigue as it comes to, you know, as it pertains to Tom Brady. I'm tired of hearing about the guy. I'm tired of hearing about his retirement, his unretirement, what boat he's on, what comedy club that he's endorsing. Uh, what model is sending him uh, love on uh, Instagram? I, I just I, I don't have a lot of appetite for Tom Brady's post-football life and the drama that comes with it. I want to know what topics you're fatigued with. 503-417-7575. And, uh, or, you know, if you're somebody who says, hey, I can't get enough of the Tom Brady stuff, because apparently there is an appetite for it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be force-fed all of this Tom Brady stuff. I want to hear from you as well. Steven, Judah, fatigue when it comes to sports. What comes to mind? Uh, for me, it's in the NBA world, it's always talking about the Lakers. Uh, that one always is fatiguing to me. Not just because, you know, as a sort of Blazer fan, I don't like the Lakers. I just, they're not relevant. Like, they're not very good, and I think they can highlight other things. Now, I know there's a lot of dysfunction there, which can provide some audience, but I just, I'm over that. Uh, I'm also over, like you said, Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers both. Like, where are they heading? Aaron Rodgers is under contract with the Packers. Like, that's what it is. I don't know what's going to happen. Nobody knows what's going to happen until it happens. It's all just a guess at this point. And so we try to just take every little thing and what does the darkness retreat mean? What did he learn? It's just, there's there's no way we're going to know the answer until it actually happens. So those, those are the couple things that, uh, for me, just I'm kind of over those. Yeah, the Lakers, you know, and look, we see a lot of this from the national media. I do find myself as I am watching Shannon Sharp and Skip talk or Stephen A. Smith talk, I roll my eyes because 
what I do find as an underlying theme in uh, a lot of those discussions is I find that they are pandering to large markets, you know, and we, I've, I've seen some of this. Look, I filled in on Fox Sports FS1 for one summer. They flew me uh, to L.A. to the Fox Studios. They had me on the set, and I was, you know, in the production meetings, and they're definitely skewing the content of the shows towards L.A., Boston, New York, Chicago, Miami, I think there's um, I think there's a lot of motivation to pander to those markets. And I even saw it, you know, I filled in on the Jim Rome show on the station you're listening to, and prior to me making my appearance there, they reminded me, hey, uh, you know, the L.A. market is really important to us. And you know damn well if they're telling the guest host, hey, don't forget the L.A. market, you know, don't talk too much about Portland and Oregon and the Pac-12 and the Pacific Northwest because we're going to get calls from all our affiliates in Southern California who aren't happy. You know damn well if they're telling the guest host that, that the ho- the real host, the regular host of those shows is getting an earful about, hey, you need to remember the Lakers. You need to remember the Dodgers. Don't forget to talk about, you know, all the things that are important to Southern California and New York and Boston and Miami while you're uh, busy talking about what really matters in sports. And so that bias is real, and that fatigue that you have, Stephen, it is orchestrated by the networks who are saying, hey, those are large population bases. We need to talk more about it. Judah, what do you have fatigue with when it comes to sports stories? I filled in for you on Friday last week on the show, and uh, one of my takes was I'm kind of tired of – Median rights negotiations. Amen. And uh, look, I I love that, you know, you're on the forefront of breaking news. So is Wilner, and apparently so is Thamel, and apparently so is a million other people. But, like, yep. I'm tired of having to read between all the damn lines. And I'm kind of mad at George as a Pac-12 fan. Like, this is what happens when you let the thing take as long as it has, is – you know, John, you have a job to do. You got to report what you get. You are as sourced up as it, you are more sourced than anybody else. That much is clear. And yet, I still know everybody's playing the game. And I just want the game to be over. That's yes. all I want. And I want to find out what the result was. And I just want it to be over. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, uh, I, hit it, I hit the wall on about Thursday, Friday of last week. And I literally turned to Anna. I'm in Vegas. I'm covering basketball. I'm there for the tournaments, but I'm meeting with athletic directors and I'm talking with university presidents on the phone for hours on Thursday and Friday. And what I came away with was that the remaining 10 members of the Pac-12 conference continue to feel galvanized, continue to feel like they're on the same page. I did find out that there are four expansion candidates that they've been approved to explore. And it doesn't mean they're going to add for it. It just means they have that approval. And I left um, the conversation kind of looking around going, why is this taking so long? Well, you know, the, the prevailing theory from people involved, actually involved with the negotiation is that Apple and Amazon, uh, this is new to them. And so conversations that should take an hour take a week. That's, that's the anecdote that I was given by somebody directly involved with those negotiations. And I do think they're going to emerge with a deal that keeps everybody together. I don't think anybody's leaving for any other conference. I've, I've never wavered in that, and I have not talked to anyone who believes otherwise. I think the big problem is we know too much. 
I think the last time the media rights deal was negotiated for the Pac-12, which was a decade ago, we didn't know it was even going on until they announced it. And I think that there was bliss in that because it allowed us to focus on the stuff that matters, which was football, basketball, uh, the stories that are around them. And I'm I'm a little exhausted with it myself. And if I'm exhausted with it, I have to think that listeners and readers are exhausted with it. And it's why I've tried not to talk about it too much on today's show because I want to give people a break from it because I do think we're going to get – like they have a meeting tomorrow, the Pac-12 CEO, CEO group, the presidents and chancellors meet tomorrow. And I've got reporters in Dallas and in other markets calling me going, hey, are they meeting tomorrow? Because they think the expansion's going to get announced. Maybe. Maybe they'll get some expansion news this week. But I think media rights could take as much as – seven to 10 to 14 more days before they get it settled. And I don't want to spend that time talking and talking. I want more of your phone calls. 503-417-7575. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Talking about fatigue with sports topics, I say Tom Brady. Steven's tired of the Lakers. Judah's tired of talking about media rights. I don't blame anybody. You tell me, what do you have fatigue with when it comes to sports? Uh, and uh, Mike is in Westland and called in. Mike, what's on your mind? Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, first of all, on your last point, this isn't my fatigue, but I do appreciate hearing about the media rights deal. It is tiresome. But I think you're, you're the great source on this because this, this side information is coming from that big 12 commissioner. I guarantee yes. you he is sabotaging things. 100%. Guarantee yeah. it. And uh, so I do appreciate hearing about it. It is, it is getting on me. You know, I just want it to be done, but, but it's good to know about. But my fatigue here, so thanks for that. My fatigue is the Dallas Cowboys, man. It is, it is just nonstop. It's, anytime the NFL talks about on the national level to talk about the Cowboys. So if the Cowboys are great, if they're bad, if they're in between, it doesn't matter. I'm like, I want them to tank, but then that'll be the story. Yep. It, 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 it goes to that America's team thing. Mike, I appreciate the call. It goes to the America's team thing. And they know that Dallas is a major national brand. The Dallas Cowboys are big. It's, it's the Dallas Cowboys. It's the new, it's the New York Yankees. It's us steel. And, uh, the national shows know that they can uh, they can shovel coal there and keep that furnace burning and i don't i i tend to i tend to think that you know i don't pay attention to that when i go to put together the show i try to talk about what i think is interesting and relevant and i try to bring the guests on that i think will make you smarter and entertain you and and, and spark great conversation in the wake of their appearances and maybe I'm wrong for that, but I just I don't want to get into that Tom Brady, Tim Tebow, Lynn Sanity sort of programming. It's just not what I'm about. Grab a podcast of the show wherever you get a podcast. We're back tomorrow with another great show, The Bald Face Truth. Not here for a long time, just a good time.